Coming up, it's Counterculture with Marie Buskey. A look into the world of critical social justice, woke culture, and more on RCR. Reality Check Radio. People are struggling to have conversations and connect with others that they don't completely agree with on every topic. And I think that's probably the biggest problem that we need to try and solve is how after all this division and after all the separation, do we end up bringing people together again? And what does unity really look like? New Zealand faces some pretty big issues. First one is COVID in the aftermath. There's no getting away from that. Second is racial division. It's been ginned up and it's dangerous. Another issue that maybe people haven't got their head around yet is digital currency. What form does that take? Is it programmable? Will it be used to manipulate behaviour and patterns of behaviour? Those questions need to be asked and answered. How can you have fair, open, democratic government by people who are appointed? It's a ridiculous idea. And if that idea is taken to its zenith, then this country is in real trouble because democracy, one person, one vote, where every vote is of equal value, has got to be the foundation of a modern New Zealand. What's true, what's not true, how our kids are to be educated. And, you know, I have a great fear for the future. I think we know from history where this could end up. Welcome back to Counterculture on Reality Check Radio for 2024. I'm your host, Marie Buskey, and this is the place where we discuss the issues through a cultural lens and how ideologies are impacting our everyday lives. Hey, I hope you enjoyed your taster last week with my catch-up with Di Landy. It's so good to be back with Kiwi Sand between my toes, and I'm really looking forward to bringing you the conversations that matter for 2024. Some of those conversations aren't easy to hear. Lesser case in point was the political agenda on Friday. Marty and I joined Paul with Donna Porchetti Phillips on issues around the treaty. And, well, the conversation, it was heated, passionate, angry, fractious, anxious. But in the end, we pivoted to another topic and we bonded over it into a common cause. Why do I bring this up? Well, because don't because I don't agree with some of the elements that Donna had with her position, I do understand the emotion behind it. Marty and I will look into this a little bit more into media matters, but I just wanted to talk about remembering that sometimes we have to refocus on what brings us together and not what pulls us apart. On today's show, first up, I'm going to be joined by Liz Gregory from the Gloria Vale Leavers Support Trust. They were central in the employment case for the government late last year. And we'll talk about that and what the trusts do and also this landmark case and where things are going for this ever-evolving story. And because it is Valentine's Day, I have Annie Hart back, my lifestyle guru, helping all of those who are looking for love by sharing her dating system. It's solid, practical advice on how to navigate the ever-evolving world of finding your perfect match. Instead of Woke News of the Week, I'll be popping up to LA to chat with Helen Taylor from Exodus Cry. She has some exciting news about a very special New Zealand premiere happening. Make sure you stay around for this. Check out our brand new RCR Foundation Members Club. Go to realitycheck.radio slash members and join now.
Welcome to Kiwi Farm. Established 1840. As the rays of the late summer sun drew long shadows over the central farmyard and paddocks, Winky Lux and Nicky Sal were taking stock of what they'd inherited from the reign of Napoleon, Squealer, and latterly Chippy Pork, who could still be spotted quietly skulking around the sheds and pens. The horror of the central feed store being perilously low and the reliance of new harvests being fruitful were wearing on the pair, overshadowed by unwanted distractions. Davy Piglet's desire to have some clarity around arrangements made with Kuni Kuni was just the fuel that the shady Kuni Svengali Tama needed to galvanise disenfranchised Kuni who was struggling to find feed and shelter, having them refocus their frustrations on Wee Davy instead. It was irrelevant in Tama's eyes that his own feed stores had grown exponentially fat during the Great Sickness, and all those in his immediate sty were very well catered for. Nope, Davy was the common enemy here, and Tama was quite happy to share grain and whispers to Kunikuni leaders to spread their word amongst their wallows. When the annual Aotearoa Farm Day celebrations were held, Winky, Davy, Winnie Ben and many others came to try and share their new vision for Kiwi Farm, but largely they were shouted out and drowned out by singing from Tama's supporters and allies. One sense of consolation for Winky was that the free-range pigs had been staying out of his lack of hair with issues of their own. One of their collective, an exotic Persian cat called Glory, had found herself in a deep hole after being caught stealing food from a variety of locations about the farm. And just as the dust started settling from this scandal, Shawshank decided it was time for him to step away from the co-leadership, which excited Moonbeam as it appeared she was now able to finally usher in her BFF, showy Salbrick, into the top job. Those in the free-range pig paddock were singing and dancing and swinging their tea towels in the air at the prospect of the change. Winnie Ben had grown quite fed up with both the kunikuni and the free-range pigs. He let his discontentment be heard at the celebrations before departing to some of the oceanic farms to check on the neighbours who'd always welcomed him so warmly in the past. Leaving at home his good friend a pack horse called Jonesy, who like Winnie had been around a very long time. Jonesy was no stranger to the shenanigans and Machiavellian nature of the likes of Tummer and was having none of it either, instead keeping himself busy at the job at hand in the central farm and making sure promises were met and delivered. The truck that had arrived at the farmyard late last year containing a collection of back paddock animals had been situated in a pasture just outside of town. They were being watched very sceptically by the other sheep. They had this annoying habit of having conversations outside of the approved list of animals that the sheep deemed 
worthy to be spoken to. And they had this habit of cultivating quiet conversations that could be heard in paddocks and pens, sheds and stables, in flocks and along fence lines, and had quite an interest in a committee that had been set up to look at Napoleon's response to the Great Sickness. According to the sheep, this was yesterday's news, and yet this group quietly chatted amongst many animals about the importance of getting involved in the wider conversation. It will be interesting to see how those conversations do unfold. And to do that, you will need to tune into Kiwi Farm next week, exclusively here on Counterculture with Reality Check Radio. This is Counterculture with Marie Buskey, Wednesdays at 10 a.m. on Reality Check Radio. Good morning and welcome back to Counterculture here on Reality Check Radio. Joining me now is the trust manager from the Gloria Vale Levers Support Trust, Liz Gregory. Good morning. How are you? Good morning. It's lovely to be here. Oh, it's so great to have you. And the trust has been getting a lot of airtime through last year. So we thought it would be really prudent to get you on to find out a little bit more about what the Gloria Vale Leaders Trust is. So tell us how the trust started and the sort of work that you're doing. Right. Well, the Leavers Trust is looking to support people who have left Gloria Vale. But we didn't just wake up one day and say, oh, this, this is a nice little idea for, for a job opportunity. Um, it, it, it happened just um, incredibly naturally. Our family left Gloria Vale around 10 years ago and came to South Canterbury and just happened to come to our local church. And so from there, there was a recognition that there was a lot of need and support and there were some incredible people in our congregation who really just um, took them under their wings and assisted this family. And so we we got involved and then their brothers and sisters, aunts, uncles, cousins started coming out. And um, I like to just sort of look for needs that are right there. And if I can help someone, I will. And, and there were people needing furniture and places to stay and contacts. And so, yeah, it just happened really naturally that we found ourselves quite immersed in, in this world. And in the past 10 years, more than probably 250 people have left Gloria Vale. Wow, um, as many as that. Yes, and a reasonably significant percentage of them have come into the South Canterbury region, have interfaced with us in one way or another, and we just continue um, friendship and relationship and support with mm. them. So for, for people that um, they may have just heard the name Gloria Vale but don't really know anything more about it, what is it? It's a restricted religious community on the west coast of New Zealand. Um, they call themselves a Christian community, but that has actually begun to offend quite a lot of people who have left Gloria Vale. Um, they would rather the Christian title was dropped from it. They believe it's yeah, causing a slur um, to the name of Christians across across our country. And so it's a religious group that just runs on um, very, very strict uh, rules and regulations. And they wear a, a, a uniform. Um, you know, they're in a, an isolated valley, like 80 kilometres away from Greymouth. So they're not um, interfacing a lot with the local community, although some do, those who have business interactions or people who do the grocery shopping or whatever. Um, so it's been a very closed community. Look, in the last two or three years, there's been a lot of uh, court action against Gloria Vale, and so they are 
kind of making promises to some government departments that, you know, they will change their ways. And so they're allowing some other government agencies and social service groups to go in and, and assist with some of their problems. But it's a it's just a sliver of the problems they have that they're they're getting looked at. So how many are sort of on the ground out there sort of any at any given time? What's the staticish number? Look, it's around five fifty to five eighty. Right. So the fact that, you know, a couple of hundred have left mm-hmm. over that sort of 10-year period, that's a significant percentage. So in your experience, having worked with a number of these families, what's the trigger? Oh, the trigger for leaving is, it's sort of variable, but it, all the same. Mm-hmm. Um, it basically comes down to a lack of faith and trust in the leadership and that maybe what they were being taught wasn't actually the truth. Uh, that really hits people hard and often you know leading up to those events could be issues of abuse um, occurring in the population maybe it's um, something that's happened to your children it could be something that happened to you as a child which is coming back to you and you recognize there's a pattern being repeated through generations so there has been a lot of of sexual abuse um, and physical abuse Um, last count that the police put out some numbers that 17 had been charged and there were 18 still more under investigation. So that that's a total of 35 members of Gloraval potentially, you know, with criminal, um, you know, things to answer for. Um, they said over 138 potential victims, but asks anyone from Gloraval and they'll say that seems a bit light. Have they been convicted? Uh, yes, yes, there are many convictions occurring. There are men sitting in prison. Look, some have still got name suppression, so the general public probably aren't aware of the work that the police are doing mm. and the courts are busy. Very. I find it ironic that they've got name suppression because, I mean, <laughs> let's face it, it's a very, very closed book out there. I mean, they all know who they were and no one else in the wider community would know them at all, I would have thought. I know, uh, very interesting. Um, yeah, we get to read, you know, if it's in the news, some of the reasons why they apply for their name suppression. And one of them actually said, because you know, my children would be um, perhaps bullied or harassed within the community <laughs> if their parent's name came out. And we're just thinking, wow, that's that's absolutely rich. That you know, It's just so crazy because, I mean, you know, if John Smith has popped away, all of a sudden he's disappeared and he's away from the community, I don't think it would be a long draw to bow to figure out that something was deeply rotten in the state of Denmark, one would think. But anyway. I mean, the, the honest truth is they don't want the link to Gloria Vale. That's, right. The community is interested in its image management here and it's it's not looking really pretty. And they know that um, their livelihood relies on businesses outside of Gloravale interfacing with them. So they're very concerned about businesses pulling out and refusing to do business with them mm. any, any longer for financial reasons. Yeah. Has, has it, things changed since the passing of, because a hopeful Christian has now passed, hasn't he? He has. He died in 2018. He was the principal leader for 40-something years, and then Howard Temple has taken over from him. Um, oh, I find that really interesting question, and um, the leavers um, inform me that hopeful still rules from the grave. He was there. We're into, you know, they're like 50-year-old community now. You, you're down at fifth generation being born. You've got um, ideology. It doesn't matter which leader is in charge. There are just things that this community are not going to budge on. 
And I want to be clear that um, part of their religious beliefs and the intention of the people joining the community, it was not, they were not joining a sex cult. Um, they, you know, it wasn't like an open place to go where all your needs get met. Well, not outside of marriage. Uh, obviously, within marriage, that was the intention for the men um, that that would occur. But so you're looking at people who went with um, good intentions, thinking that this group was going to meet some need in their life, perhaps a utopian view of things. But what you had was a leader who was, you know, incredibly narcissistic and had cult-like tendencies. And so very quickly people became entrapped by the bullying and the harassment, but also the charisma and the mm. and the, the dream, the vision, you know, to serve the Lord and work together and share. But really I would dare to suggest that was just a pretext mm. um, for uh, someone who wanted to control, just wanted to have something. And so the ideology remains, even though Hopeful has passed. Uh, interestingly, in one of the employment court cases, the new leadership tried to maintain that, no, no, things were very different now since Hopeful had gone. We're a much more collaborative leadership team. Well, actually, that, that doesn't look good for them at all uh, because in the last five years there have been some horrific things um, happening and terrible stories of family separation um, and just, just lies. And, and so I don't think it's good for them at all. So I would say, um, yeah, Howard is a, slightly, is a different personality, but it doesn't matter. They don't intend to change things that Hopeful set up. They don't feel they have the power to because he said God told him. Yeah, yeah. It's incredible the um, the horizontal policing that oh. happens within a very small group. And you look at the, the sort of this isolated little petri dish that is Gloria Vale, and then you look at the wider community and society that we had in 2020, and you can actually see how they were able, how it can be achieved, isn't I it? I know. And during that time in 2020, during those times of COVID, one of the levers, a male, wrote a poem. And he spoke about, and he, it was a parallel to life in Gloryvale. What would you want to go outside for? You might catch this terrible disease. There's a contagion out there. And, and you need to lock yourself away and isolate yourself in your home in case you catch this. And they wrote this striking poem. And a many Gloryvale levers were really triggered through this period, they looked at us and said, can't you see it? Can't you see the, how the claws of control just come in? And everybody's just sitting there and they would say it, they're just sitting there asleep. But they had experienced how that, how those sort of techniques work. And so I, I just, yeah, and I, I felt like I had to um, just be a, a little bit of a fence sitter um, because when people come out of, um, cult-like groups that they've been in for years, there can be um, a tendency to jump on board at an extreme end of something. Yes, be very and vocal, yeah. you can, And so you can go down massive rabbit holes that actually, you know, you and I may, would probably agree are reasonably off, off the planet. <laughs> yeah. um, and so it's um, I, I found myself sitting in a balance saying, as a family, you're going to have to decide how to move ahead in 2020. You're going to have to work this out and make a decision because decision making is really difficult for people who have come out of cults. Mm. Um, they've not been allowed to. And being sort of in this position and, and doing this job and, and some of the work that I've done, particularly I've done a lot of work prior to this uh, in the space of critical social justice. So I've been sort of 
battling that dragon for five or six years. But you do it from a place of knowledge and facts, and you've got to take the emotion out of it. You have to take the emotion out of it because emotion can lead you into those extreme dark places. And you've got to take it always back to facts. And and I mean, I guess for your leavers, you know, that is such a tumultuous time for them. What that they've gone through. So I can definitely see how you would have to sort of temper things um, and and sort of help navigate them through that mm. period of time. And that, that must look, you know, I found it really triggering. I've had, mm. got a lot of, I know a lot of people that come from Eastern Bloc countries, especially, who were just like your leavers. I would say, I don't get it. I, I can't understand why. And like, can't people see what's happening? And no, they can't. And I know that if I weren't, working in critical social justice and having been in that space for a number of years prior to COVID, I don't know whether I would have seen it either. It's it's sneaky. It, it is, is sneaky. Really sneaky. It is. And so what happens is you live in this sneaky group. And so, and that's the way everything's done. So you, you learn to then live like that. <laughs> and so people coming out of the, these groups say they struggle with decision making but they struggle with that sort of integrity as well how do I how do I live in this new world um holding on to beliefs and values that I I hold dear and 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 standing firm on them and and not and not buckling and not living not living Mm. sneaky well I guess too because I mean ultimately this is I think the beautiful thing about your trust is the fact that it's it's come out of a faith base so you've gone and obviously founded it out of your church I mean some people have uh, missions in Africa you guys have a mission on the west coast which I think is great you know charity that always begins at home as they say Uh, so this is just wonderful but that's just it your faith doesn't turn off it's the faith in the community isn't it that's been put to test Perfect. Yeah, that's exactly right. So yeah, we're not at all anti anti religious, and you know our trust. We decided not to start it say out of our church. We chatted, and many of our church members are involved in it. But we started it as a separate, you know, secular charitable trust because we recognise that people coming out of Gloria Vale may not be interested in any faith-based assistance whatsoever because they have been abused, they have seen hypocrisy, they've been spiritually abused. It's a very um, it's a very sad situation um, that things that happened in the name of God were so appalling. Um, treatment of people, lack of love and care is just is phenomenal in there. And so, yeah, to start the trust was an opportunity to say, hey, Come one, come all. We'll help you regardless of your faith, whether you want to continue in it or not. We'll help you on whatever level you you choose. I think that's quite difficult for people in Gloria to even comprehend mm. because I know people were, um, they always want to sort of be able to pay you back or like they lived in a world where if you did something kind for someone else, it was sort of an expectation of return. And here they are out here and people are just giving them furniture and support and they're not expecting anything in return and they really struggle to accept that people could just unconditionally love them and support them and not have any other agenda and want them to do what you want to do and so what are some of the life skills the everyday life skills that you and I take for granted growing up um outside in the in the wider community what are some of those skills for them they are having to start from ground zero start from scratch because they they're not taught that with inside the community 
Yeah, obviously there's just sort of everything practical from, you know, putting a CV together to the job application process. Um, but I think that, that and, and everything from grocery shopping to phone use, just everything standard you could think of. Um, but even concepts like insurance, vehicle insurance, these ideas, uh, insurance was bad in Glorivale, meant you didn't trust God. And so firstly, you have to show people that uh, there's a need for insurance. Um, and money, money management, I'm picking money management, another one. A biggie. Um, in Glorivale, there was this concept of the woman's money, and that was like money that came from working for families and that was used for food and clothing. And then the men's money was sort of went business direction. And so you'd have the woman's, there's no budget, no money to buy toothpaste, but the men are going out buying a $10,000 farm vehicle. So there's a little bit of difference in the way men and women actually view the money as well when they come out. So there's a lot of um, sort of work to be done there, bringing them together that, hey, you're a family unit now. This is your family money. And together as a couple, can we encourage you to, to discuss money money matters? There are so many issues. I think the biggest one is actually just this is we're a different culture. So they're coming into a world and there's culture shock. And so think of everything that would entail. If you just left your home today, you jumped on a plane with barely a backpack, you took your 10 children with you, you landed with no money in the middle of, I don't know, pick a country, pick a place, Mumbai. You didn't really know anybody. And you stood around and you looked around and you thought, oh, uh, I don't speak the language. I don't recognise these streets. Maybe you have a driver's licence, maybe you don't. Like, what are you going to do? Mm-hmm. So the reality is the culture shock. And I think the communication barriers are potentially some of the more difficult ones. I think the issue is I leave is when they're living in there, they don't realise that. Mm. I think they feel very comfortable in their world over there. When they come out here, they're not quite recognising that, yeah, we're, we're slightly different. Yeah, slightly different. I just see a tremendous resource because I mean there'd be a lot of practical skills that would have been taught particularly to the men and, and the women there and I know they must surely those levers have enriched the South Canterbury community that you live in tremendously with the skills that they've got and there's huge potential like I'm here in Hawke's Bay and the uh, my day job the day business I know one of the biggest things we struggle with is finding people with requisite skills to be able to fill into to roles so it's the the opportunities for them probably they're out there they probably it might be quite overwhelming that they are out there for them Yes, extremely overwhelming. It's one question we have learned not to ask when someone leaves Laurel. We don't ask what would you like to do because they really don't know what wow. they like or what they don't like because in Glorival you didn't have likes or dislikes, you did what you were told. So we would ask what um what have you been what have you been doing? You know, what have you been working in and how did you feel about it? And they might be able to articulate they liked it or didn't, but it's it's difficult. So they do have some very specific great skills. Just reading the fabulous uh, farming magazine and one of the um, young fellas that left at 14, he's now in his 20s, married, and um, he's right into the Jersey cows. I mean, this I read this article and I was just, it was just gobbledygook. Um, but I, I just recognised what a talent and a gift this, this guy has in farming. And, of course, that's come from, you know, up until 14, he was probably milking cows at, you know, six and seven, whatever age they started, eight or nine. And so he's developed a love 
of farming and that but not all who worked on the farms actually enjoyed the farm work but many come out and go into farming because it affords them a house somewhere they can take their family it's more rural which appeals to them the isolation and it's something they feel like they could do because at least they've got some experience in it but then different ones will move and morph in different directions. But look, yeah, there are, um, there's enormous, we've got seamstresses who have opened up curtain businesses and all sorts. Um, yeah, so yeah there are strengths, but it's, again, it's the communication. You can't just open a business if you're too scared to talk on the telephone or if you're not sure how to open a conversation with someone. So there's this time period that, that needs to pass before someone feels confident about their skills, that they've actually got something to offer, that mm. they're not just drowning in this new world, which yeah. really is the first year or two. It so, is. so you mentioned work. So let's sort of hive off into the court case last year, which made headlines, which was around uh, what is an employee, what is a volunteer? So tell us a little bit more about that if people haven't caught that, um, you know, caught up with that from 2023. Yeah, an absolutely brilliant masterstroke genius from um, the lawyers um, because they we were interfacing with the government over why is no one looking into the global exploitation of employees situation? And we had um, sent letters to MBIE, that's the Ministry of Business, Innovation and Employment. The Ministry of Everything. Ministry of Everything. (laughs) It's their job, we thought. Um, And, you know, they they were um, sort of listed as a group of interest back in 2016. I think there was a charity services investigation. Why is Glorabelle still a charity? And so MBIE were told to go and take a look. And they did a little paperwork exercise, desktop review, never went there, and then decided there was nothing to see here. And it got buried. Well, we never even knew that report existed. Had we, would have have made more of a fuss at the time. And so then three years ago, when a civil lawsuit was launched, which was basically some levers trying to remove the trustees of the Glorabelle Trust, um, as conversations went on, it became apparent in the public sphere that, you know, why wasn't someone doing something about the employment? So one of the journalists from TV3 contacted like Andrew Little and said, what's going on here? Bingo. Andrew Little does some investigating, finds that there's this report that was buried and says, hmm, we must take another look at this. <laughs> Meanwhile, we're out with protest signs saying, slavery at Glory Vale, forced labour, come on, what are you doing? And the response was, we will do a pre-investigation to see whether we need to investigate. So their pre-investigation involved um, interviewing, I don't know, like 17 Gloryvale leavers, and then they went into Gloryvale for their pre-investigation and interviewed like, I don't know how many, 35 in there. And, of course, Gloryvale says it's all glossy, we're happy to be here, we love it here, we're volunteers. The leavers are like, it was like slavery and forced labour. There's this massive divide between the two. And guess what the Labour Inspectorate decided? Nine months it took them. It sat with Crown Law for nine months to give the advice, and Crown Law said, "Mm, on the balance of probabilities, I think if we took Gloribel to court, you know, basically we wouldn't win. That's the, that's the, yeah, what was going on in the heads. And they said, I think on the balance of it, they're volunteers. We couldn't believe it. Do you think it was a case of, oh, out of sight, out of mind? You know, totally. just, they're, they're in the, the back the back blocks of the West Coast. Oh, no one else gets to see them, so let's not worry about them. Worse than that, they're, 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 when I read the report, they didn't want to touch religious freedom. 
That's <laughs> the irony. I know. That's what I think. <laughs> I'm like, this is interesting. No, they said this is a group that's like has their own religion. Basically, they've got their own book and they're kind of living by it and pe- people are happy too. And we said, that's where you don't understand coercion and control. You guys are not familiar with these concepts and you should be. Um, and so, well, the, you know, they, they became very familiar with them over time. But anyway, continue. <laughs> so within like four weeks, I remember ringing Brian Henry, who's the Lever's lawyer, and said, Brian, I'm so annoyed at these, you know, these government officials. Why can't they see this? This is appalling. He said, send me, send me everything you've got. <laughs> Within a few weeks, he gathered up plaintiffs, and that was the boys' case, the courage case, three male plaintiffs. He said, let's go with the boys. Let's get a win and show that these boys were working in businesses and they were not being paid and they were being exploited and it was classic employment. And so that's what happened. But guess what? The lawyers were so smart. They didn't take Gloria Vale to court. Gloria Vale were not the first defendants in these employment cases. The government was. Wow. So how, okay. That's why it's hit the news. It's not because the levers have taken Gloria Vale to the employment court. No, no, no. No, the lawyers and the plaintiffs took the attorney general to court in his role as head of government organisations, specifically MBIE and WorkSafe, for their failure to recognise exploitation when they should have seen it. And defendants number two were Gloria Vale. Yeah, and of course, with that buried report, there was already a chain of evidence. Evidence sitting there, we've got a lot of it. So that's why it hit the headlines. This is the government being sued. So the employment court um, case really was split into three parts. First part, was it employment? Were they volunteers or employees? And so that had to be the first part. Second part was, so who was the employer? Because if the government's going to act against someone or, or organise compensation, who? Who is this person? Is it the overseeing shepherd? Is it the group of servants and shepherds? Is it the Christian Church Charitable Trust? Because they owned businesses that these boys were working in. Is it the business directors? And yet the court case showed they were just like figureheads. The business managers and directors never had a clue what was going on. So who's the employer? Really important question. Who? Who has to pay up? And then the third stage, and we're waiting on the third stage, this part hasn't happened yet, um, the government in the dock answering for their failure to recognise the exploitation. So really three-part court case, two bits down, one to go. Wow. So that's hopefully going to unfold this year. Yes, I'm hoping definitely. Oh, gosh, it's so oh. incredible. And then the boys, within two weeks of the boys beginning their court case, the legal team filed the second court case before and, the first one even finished. And, and that, this was for the women, yes? Women. And the women were more difficult. The women weren't working in classic businesses. They weren't in the farming or the honey industry. They were working for the whole community, doing cooking and cleaning. Is this employment? Is this just you working for your family, your wide family of 600 in your home, up in a, what looked like a commercial kitchen, but Gloria Val just says is their family home? 
And so the judge has found that it was employment. The girls were born to do it. They were rostered. They had absolutely no choice in the matter. And if you chose not to do the work you were allocated, your choices were leave the community and go to hell. Okay, so this is not looking like volunteer work. Mm. It's just so incredible. Laura Vell are appealing the girls. They didn't appeal the boys. They're appealing the girls' decision. They know this marks the end of how their community operates. Quite serious if they can't have their young girls propping up the community like this. Yeah, yeah. Well, there was a article, uh, I think it was in the Post, um, at, towards the end of last year, glory of our leaders have been refused the chance to appeal on four grounds in the employment court case that ruled that the group of women were employees when they worked in the community. So, yeah. That's it. Now, it was, the appeal was largely dismissed. The judges mm. have actually held off on two points and have invited more submissions. So we're just in that process now. Page. And you know what the those were about? Finer points of law about how this particular case might set a precedent for other religious and volunteer organisations. So they're nervous about this being used as a precedent. Uh, And they also want a bit more information on the agency of the plaintiffs within the global community, agency being your ability to make decisions. And obviously we know that that there was no capacity for them. It was Um, a stark choice. You stay well, and do what you're told. And, 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 And one of the things that I've discovered is that courts are very nervous mm-hmm. about setting precedent with anything. And as you said, this could create precedents with uh, other religious and volunteer communities, but it also goes to setting precedents in terms of, I think, uh, what is coercion and Definitely. what isn't? What We're does agency we- look like? What does mm-hmm. um, being applied to do something, you know, without actually having any other choice? And that can actually spill over into a great many things. So and we don't have coercive control laws yet in New Zealand. Now, they have them now in New South Wales and Queensland. They're, they're around the world. They're growing. But they're normally within the realm of domestic harm and violence within intimate family violence. But actually, Glorabelle is an intimate family violence setting. Um, there is a, it's family harm on a mass scale. So, yeah, we're interested in where New Zealand goes with that law, how it would apply. But I don't have a problem with this ruling being used as a precedent. If Europe an organisation, religious or not, who behaves as badly as Glorivale does, restricts people's freedom of thought and movement, puts them in bondage, forced labour, social entrapment. I don't care if you've got a religious veneer or not. And then you're exploiting people in the workforce. You need to have, you need to be brought to task. And if this precedent is the one that gets you hauled into court, good. Mm. I don't believe that the matrix of facts is going to apply to, you know, 50 other religious organisations in New Zealand, but it might apply to a few, and Mm. perhaps they need to be brought to task. The ruling that came out of the case last year, you would have been pleased with the result. Yes, there were two parts to it. Obviously, the first being that they were employees, so that was spectacularly significant. And yeah, the judge found they were. And then she needed to take some time to think about who was the employer. And so that's the one that just came out towards the end of last year. And yeah, it made sense. Um, look, these were girls who were working for the wider community. They weren't working for any businesses or any other group. And so she found that the employer was the overseeing shepherd and she went to great pains to explain it. It wasn't just sort of the role of the overseeing shepherd or the office, it was that, but also the people who have have 
fitted that role. And so she talked about Hopeful Christian being up until his death um, and then Howard Temple now, and then even moving forward, it would be the expected um, overseeing shepherd of Stephen Stanfast. So that was quite a significant moment. Gloria Bart had argued that up until Hopeful Christian's death in 2018, that because he was now dead, anything that had gone on prior to that in the employment employment sphere, um, any liabilities or responsibilities he had ceased. They tried to argue the sort of contractual ceasing approach. Um, however, the judge spoke about something called innovation, which is where you have someone take over all the responsibilities. There's just the seamless transition. Everybody understands all the parties to the contract, which Gloria Bell says there wasn't a contract, but she said, you know, there is effectively one. It, it, it manifested itself in the work people did and the way they mm. did the work. Yeah, so basically one overseeing shepherd just rolls to the next. There's an expectation that life just trucks along as normal in Gloria Vale. So, yeah, she's made a ruling that has definitely, you know, opened the gates and paved the way for the next step. So what is that next step? The next step is those plaintiffs, if they would like to, can go to the Employment Relations Authority, the ERA, and lay a claim against Gloria Vale for exploitation and any lost wages, compensation, and I guess humiliation and every everything else that they might feel they are entitled to, holiday pay. Mm. Yeah, so that potentially could be massive. Now, did Gloria Vale have the financial ability to be able to fight this in court or even pay the compensation for these women? Certainly do. Um, Their annual return from last year showed $27 million in income. Uh, The year before that was around $21 The year before that was $20 Before that, it was $19 So where does all this money go? Oh, that's the biggest question. I think um, most obviously are their new purchases of land. They have purchased properties and they've got these lease agreements and, and they've actually paid out Brunner. So Lake Brunner is worth, from memory, you can't remember, maybe eight, nine million dollars. This is their community about 30 kilometres away. Their new community, their second community. These guys aren't satisfied to just have one community. They want to actually, their model, they admit it in court, is to create multiple smaller communities. And so they're trying to get this Lake Brunner up and running. They're doing that now while pleading they don't have money to pay compensation. The question is, where does their money come from? Well, they've got 400 children under 20, so maybe 350 of them are under 18. Working the families' tax credits. Well, so that was my going to be my next question. Because if that is if they are claiming those working for families tax credits, where's the SFO in all of this? Oh, um, absolutely silent. Because surely if they're deliberately doing non-payment to families uh, for their work in inverted commas and not paying them, so therefore they're not receiving an income so they can lodge a tax return or even a a pittance of an income so they can lodge a tax return in order to qualify for credits, which they then pocket. I mean, that's got to be exploitation 101, I would have thought. Well, it gets more complex than that. Gloravel says, we do pay our people. And actually, there was this underground, they've created a partnership so that they could put all the money and the earnings in, pool it, and then Gloravel would separate it out according to the 
the taxes to make it um, work better for their family tax credits. And so lots of people were allocated an income of just under the thresholds. And so tax was paid on those individual incomes, had nothing to do with how and when you worked. It was completely unrelated mm-hmm. to the working. They just, people joined the partnership, you know, when and how it suited the the managers for whatever reason. And so that um, created a lot of people in there earning under that sort of is it $14,000 tax threshold or under the $30,000 tax threshold. So they were paying tax on that. Then they were effectively, um, they weren't giving it to the people. The people apparently agreed to donate it back to the charitable trust, getting themselves a 33% tax rebate. And so it was a really great mechanism. So the Leavers lawyers said, this is just like a tax scam, basically. Like, how come no one can see this? But I guess um, people are allowed to donate their money to other groups and organisations if they like. The problem is it's now been established in court that there were servitude-like conditions. People were living in a socially entrapped environment. They had lack of agency. There was control and coercion. So, yeah, where is the serious fraud office? I have no idea. Never never heard that they expressed any interest. The IRD, no idea. Don't seem too worried. Gosh, you know, and when you think about the efforts that they went to in 2023 to chase those with COVID payments and repayments, I wonder how many COVID payments were actually claimed by Gloria Vale, because I bet you dollars to donuts, they were on the phone to MB Lickety Split to get some of that money. Yeah, I'm not sure, actually. I never heard anything about that. Um, yeah, not sure. But And obviously the rest of their money is coming from businesses. So they had a meal plant and dairy farms um, and yeah, various other oh, – ah, they did have a honey factory now defunct and they did have various other businesses over time which are no longer in existence. They're not uh, – lots of levers would say they, they weren't exactly the best financial managers of businesses. You didn't get your job as a business manager because of your business – experience or prowess it was really your loyalty to the management and and hopeful and Howard and the system because if you were someone who was great at um if you had great ideas or initiative you weren't really respected in there no one was supposed to have a good idea or run with it unless you were higher up the food chain and so you've actually got some brilliant people who would have made fantastic managers and really managed the businesses properly So like Brian Henry's lawyer said, they've got more than $65 million in assets. And so he said they've got 65 million reasons not to want to part with this money in compensation too. Mm, Absolutely. Well, we're going to have to watch the space this year, aren't we? Because I think this this is just the beginning. Yes, and the next part after that, this has paved the way for part two. Obviously, they can go to the Employment Relations Act. Most importantly, the judge made it very clear that The doors are now open to continue the third part of this court case saga, which is um, the government's breach of duty. So she's asked for a timetabling of the hearing to begin that process. But the Labour inspector at the government are saying, this isn't the right court to hear that in. We we refute that the employment, we should be, we should be taken to the employment court for our failure to act on employment issues. So they would like it moved to another court. Of course they would. Possibly a court that requires a higher standard of evidence against them. 
Yeah, well, yes, indeed. Well, we go, we, we go, look, Lewis, we're going to stay in touch on this because I think this is an unfolding story and it's fascinating. Now, if people want to get more information about what you do in terms of the Levers Trust, where can they find that? We have a website, glorabellevers.org.nz, so they can go there. We've got quite a comprehensive um, set up there for people to make contact, donations, support, um, resources, news articles, blogs, you name it. It's quite a full some website and there's more going on in the next year. So Yeah, no, because I'm, I'm just thinking too, there could be people out there with businesses uh, that are needing good, solid people. And if, um, you know, they might be able to offer uh, work or employment or a, a home even for some of these levers, you know, and and get them help help them resettle with your help. So, yeah, no, that's well, it's really, really grateful to hear from that. It, it's nice to think there are people across New Zealand who are, are willing to do that, and we have a little database here and people who ring in and and offer. We we do take their details, and sometimes it might sit there for six months or a year, and then out of the blue, as a family leaves and expresses some interest on where they want to go, and they'd like our help. We we often find ourselves trying to match up, match yeah. people up. We're oh. really grateful for the public's interest in this and the support they give leavers. We've also got a Facebook page, and we have our newsletter, Friends of the Trust, it's called, and we send that out four times a year. Give people updates on what we're doing, what levers are doing, achievements. Yeah, it's oh, really- no, honestly, Liz, it sounds wonderful, and it is truly God's work. So, thank you so much for everything that you're doing. This has been Liz Gregory from the Glory of Our Levers Trust, Levers Support Trust. Uh, and as she said, check out their website and all their other details. Get that newsletter, and uh, I'm definitely going to get Liz back as these court cases unfold because this is, I think, a story that we have to watch. Uh, more here to come with Reality Check Radio. More talk, more conversation here on Counterculture. Thanks, Liz. Thank you. Welcome back to Counterculture on RCR with Marie. Coming up soon, I'm joined by Annie Hart with her dating advice for modern singles. Firstly, though, I wanted to take a beat to reflect on a moment in time. It was a year ago that life for many here in Hawke's Bay and our friends, family and neighbours up the coast in Wairau and Gisborne changed forever. Cyclone Gabrielle was predicted. Monday, during the steady rain, many of us worked to ensure that we were prepared. Floods in November 2020 in Napier City were still fresh in many of our minds. However, no one predicted the volume of the deluge that fell in the hills and thundered its way down the valleys. Breach flood protection measures decimated farms, homes and livelihoods. The weeks that followed were surreal. Whilst we got off relatively unscathed in town, power, water and phone services were cut for days, sometimes weeks. Those in outlying areas were left cut off too, physically with roads and bridges, being washed away not just for weeks, but months. This was when neighbours, communities, marae and congregations came together. It was this people power that made all the difference. How you identify or your politics were irrelevant. What do you need, mate? Was the question asked, and sleeves were rolled up, and despite help, and inverted commas from government, it was the communities which largely ignored the hot air blowing in from Wellington, and they just got on with the job and did it themselves. So I'd like to take this moment to reflect and thank all those local heroes who helped, and to encourage everyone listening to make the effort to get those connections with your neighbours, even if it's just to say good day across the fence, because you never know when that kindness of strangers might save your life. You've heard the words open, fair, 
both sides of the story, it's easy to say them, but practicing them often seems like a bridge too far. New Zealand, it's time for a reality check. Reality check. RCR, Reality Check Radio. Rational discussion, common sense, and open debate for real. With me, Paul Brennan. You know, you just can't make this stuff up. You couldn't write the script. Veteran broadcaster Peter Williams. Where is the evidence they actually make a difference? It turns out that was a very fair question to ask. Taking on the mainstream, Chantel Baker. Mainstream media, as usual, in their little perch. The man who cares so much and whose background is for real, Rodney Hyde. The doctors don't believe them. They can't get ACC. They can't work. They're told it's all in their head. Along with a raft of contributors to inform, entertain and bring the truth back to New Zealand media. It's time for a reality check, all right. RCR, Reality Check Radio at www.realitycheck.radio. We've arrived. Good morning and welcome back to Counterculture here with Marie on Reality Check Radio. And it's with great pleasure I welcome back my lifestyle guru, the woman who knows things any heart. How are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Good. I'm just really excited because you and I have been talking about loads of topics that we're going to talk about over the coming months. And uh, this one was on the list and I just we had to do it next. So we did debt last time, which is, you know, important. But this one, it's, we're going with another D, dating. fun. Bit more it's fun, a, and it's a bit more fun dating. Yeah, yeah, you have a system. I'm not surprised. I do. I do have a system, um, and I developed it because of my own personal situation, having been very single for quite a long time. Mm. So that's how that came about. Mm. And I think it's important too. It's so. I mean, you know, we're we're of a similarish age, and man, has it changed in our adult yes. life? How it and used then. to work. So you were just talking about the um the old paper dating. Oh, system. I know. Mm. I know it's changed so much and and you know the old because so much of it so many of your connections used to be you'd meet someone at work or at a club like a when I say club like a social club or a sports club they used to have I think Friday night dances in local halls yeah we missed out on that we're a bit we're a bit um, bit too young for that but our parents did it yeah, and so many of those things just don't exist anymore now. So how does somebody who's single, especially if they're, you know, more adult, how does someone who's become newly single or has been terminally single get back terminally into the saddle? Well, 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 yeah, I mean, there there is a system um, and people right now, you know, you've got online dating, which is you can apply this method to any type of dating really. Um, but um, back in the day, and you might remember this too, there was something I think it was called, I'm going to call it Town and Country Connections or something. Um, and my first foray into dating way back then was actually to join that system. You paid a fee and they sent you an envelope full of profiles and writings that the people had done themselves and you sifted through and you could write them a letter or you could give them a phone call. But some people only wanted a letter to start with and I remember receiving, you know, big long letters. But anyway, before we get into the the method, um, there's a few precursors to dating, which really come down to are you ready for this yet? Um, meaning, 
Um, you know, have you thought through what you're looking for? How much baggage have you got? Um, you know, are you still moaning about your ex? Are you still in, in court with your ex? Um, all of those things. Doesn't mean you can't date without doing those things, but you really have to consider um, what's your history? What's your mental state? Are you actually fit to be? Have you got something to give in a relationship? Um, what are your social skills? What's another thing on the list? What's your goal? That's really important. We can talk about that. Um, are you actually available? And what are your deal breakers, right? Mm. Now, I've met people who get very fussy about, oh, I can't have a man that's blonde or a woman that's blonde. Um, to me, that's not a deal breaker. I, th I think a deal breaker is more of a values. What, what are your values? What do you value? And even if your goals aren't the same, if you've got some overlapping values, um, then you're going to be on the right track. Mm. So I reckon you need to write yourself a list, um, a list of absolute, you know, what, who are you? What are your values? And then what are you looking for? And what are the deal breakers? It's interesting you say that about values. I interviewed Gad Sad a while ago, and we were talking about his new book, The Sad Truth About Happiness. And one of the key things for happiness is uh, having a fulfilled partner, a partnership in life. And he said there were two maxims. There was the uh, opposites attracts ma maxim, mm -hmm. and then there was the birds of a feather flock together. And he said, by and far, the most successful is the birds of the feather flock together. And it's exactly yeah. what you just said. It's looking yeah. at all of those values and deal breaker things yeah. and actually finding somebody which has a big crossover and commonality with you on those value propositions values. that you have. Yeah. yeah well, they can't I, be I underestimated. I mean, we're both now married and we've both mm. been dating. We've both online dated, you've revealed. Yes, I um, I hope that wasn't too much. Um, and um, my husband and I, on the surface, you would not think that we had matching values, but we have found out, particularly over the last three years, that we have very much matching values. And um, I have seen relationships that have fallen apart because values don't match. And, um, you know, some people are very materialistic. Um, some people want to bring up free-range children. Other people, um, you know, they want to travel, but their partner doesn't. You know, those things, I mean, traveling is not really a value. It's more of an aspect. Well, I suppose it can be a value that you value the ability to see the world. But, um, you know, you can have Christians and non-Christians together. You can have people of different religions together but I think everything needs to be upfront um, and available as you develop a relationship obviously your first conversation won't be all of those things but as you go on to meet people um, it's really important to discuss expectations goals and values and a lot of people skip those things because they have a fear of rejection and um, I've been doing a bit of study for this particular interview, and there's a couple of books I've been listening to on Audible about dating by people that are so-called experts. Um, yep, yeah, and they talk about fear of rejection being the biggest thing that holds people back to be honest about who they are and what they're looking for. So I would suggest if you want to get into dating because you just want to have sex, be really honest about that um if you when I was dating I was actually looking for somebody I could be with so that I could have a child um and I had reasons for wanting a second child because my first child has severe disability and I wanted to have grandchildren and I was very upfront about that 
um, and that drove people away, which is good. You want to reject or have those people auto-choose themselves away from you so that you can clear the field for the right person to come along. You don't Mm. want to lie to someone just because you're so desperate to actually go the next step on a date, which might be meeting people or having sex or going out to dinner or whatever the next step is for you. Well, and that that self-selection very early on is actually probably a good thing because I think a lot of people enter into that thinking, oh, if it isn't quite right at the beginning, we can change that as we go along. Yeah. And actually, if it's not quite right at the beginning, it's just not quite right. That's your warning sign. I mean, um, my history, just without going into too much detail, is before I decided to date and use a dating system, I was having relationships with the wrong men. And my choices got worse and worse until I realized I was almost at rock bottom and I thought, I'm just going to stop. So I did. I stopped for quite some time. And then when I wanted to jump back in, I developed, because I'm quite systematic about things, um, and I decided to create a system, much like a funnel. Those of you that have business or network marketing or whatever, you've got all these people at the top of the funnel. And as the funnel gets narrower, you've weeded out the people or the situations that are not suitable for you. So, um, I mean, you can apply a funnel to anything in life when you're trying to make choices. Choosing a house to buy, for example, I've just done that. Um, looked at what what are the what are the things I really want, and sometimes those things refine as you get into the system. So, don't be afraid of jumping in because you're not. I'm contradicting myself completely. Clear. Maybe you don't know what your bottom lines are for um, your bottom line, but for me, a bottom line is somebody that's a gambler somebody that's a serial cheater, um, somebody that lies, um, somebody that can't apologise. Those sorts of qualities are the things, you know, they, they are the deal breakers for me because I want someone to say to me, look, I really like you, but this isn't working. And I don't, you know, and I, I wouldn't want to waste my time with someone who felt that they were just humouring me by meeting me again, for example. Mm. You know, I like people to be honest. And honesty can be painful. But, you know, there are words around being honest to say, well, it's been lovely to meet you, but I don't think we're a match. You know, I had to do that over and over again. Um, And and the more you do it, the more you experience, whether it's, I'm going to use the word rejection loosely, whether for some of us we're triggered by being um, said no to, and it's not actually a rejection of you, but it can feel like that. And if you are out there listening and you want to get into the dating world and you don't know how to start, but you're afraid of being rejection, then you've got some work to do Hmm. Um, because you're not, I'm not going to say you're not ready, but you've got some, you've got to get, you've got to, you've got to experience rejection, what you call rejection in order to be not afraid of it anymore. Mm. Right. Well, it's getting back to that self. So it's really like you need to set the garden bed, don't you, before you actually get into bed. You know, you yeah, sort of yeah. have to you exactly. have to sort of, as you say, do it's amazing how much work you need to do on yourself but before you're ready. You can do it while you're starting to do a system like this. Um, and with the help of several people online, you know, just having a little think about what I did and what other people might do, um, one person said, look, um, a so-called expert said, um, you have to get comfortable with rejection, so go out and get rejected. And he, he was a guy talking about women, and he said, um, you know, don't use cheesy systems, don't um, – you know, use those cheesy lines or techniques. You actually need to develop skills. And for some people, 
they don't have the skills of saying hello and meeting people. Mm-hmm. So something I did, for example, during the um, what we call lockups in our family, other people politely refer to them as lockdowns, but we've considered we were locked up. Um, I would go to the supermarket and chat to people and they would be people with masks and I wasn't wearing one. And for example, I'd say, g'day, g'day, how are you today? Nice day. You know, you know, and I, we, I might talk about the masks or the cheese in the aisle, or I might say, look, this is my favorite bacon because it's, it's nitrate free and it's grown in New Zealand. Most of the other bacon isn't, you know, we'll talk about whatever. But if I was wanting to get out in the world and meet a partner, um, I would suggest learn to be chatty with strangers yeah. and learn to be rejected. So they might look at you funny and go, well, you know, you're an F-wit, not wearing a mask, I'm not going to talk to you, or whatever reason. But now in the world, um, you know, in the supermarket, we're not encountering too many people wearing a mask. So that's now, not a barrier. Isn't that interesting that you say that? Because both of you, you and I have worked in sales. So as somebody who's worked in sales, the sales and marketing retail, retail people generally as a rule get to practice this every single day they're at work. Exactly. You get used to the art of small talk is yep. actually an art. Yep, yep. And with, with, you know, separating people through screens, I'm amazed at the number of people that have lost that art. I'm a talker, you see. So, I mean, I'm, you know. Ditto. Hello, yeah. So for this, you know, I mean, I'm sure listeners are not surprised. No. This is why I have this Particularly with you, because they know you very well. (laughs) So you... That is you. That is so right. Supermarkets a great place. I used to love those. Supermarkets a great place. Yeah, yeah. to practice. Supermarkets are neat. You never know. You might practice rejection. Supermarket. Yeah. Well, get comfortable with rejection, um, and I'm using that word deliberately because um, I actually was at a party um, over the weekend. And there was a woman there who was very upset because somebody had broken up with her and she was very drunk. And the words coming out of her mouth were, um, I just want someone to love me. I do so much for so many other people and nobody loves me. Well, that's a very desperate state to be going out searching for love because you'll pick anyone. And I've done that. I know what it's like to pick the dregs. And and I'm not saying to those people, if you're listening, that you're bad people, but you are unsuitable for me and way off my, Mm. way away from my values, right? So She needs to learn to love herself. Yes, that's right. Absolutely, absolutely. So if you actually feel um, nobody's going to love, nobody loves you, everybody hates you, I would go to counselling or um, or some sort of group therapy, and I'm being serious about that. Don't go out and get yourself rejected in the dating market because you're not ready. You'll get ultimately dumped or um, you'll stay in a bad relationship for the wrong reasons. So don't do that. You don't want to get into a bad relationship for the wrong reasons. It's not worth it. It's better You're better off to be alone and to sit with yourself and to find out who you are with the help of some skilled person. And there are mm. many, many, many good people out there. Spend the money. Go mm. get counselling. Um, so, in some so cases, you can get it for free. So, so you've got yourself sorted out. Yes, if you, well, relatively speaking. Relatively yeah. sorted out. So, and, and it's time to dip the toe in. What next, Annie? Well, um, there are many, many online dating sites these days. And back in the day, you know, we had paper ones, but there are many. And it really doesn't matter what site you pick. You can put yourself on all of them and find out. You know, some of them have reputations for being all about sex and some of them don't. You know, if you're a man and you're getting on Grinder, but you're looking for a woman, you're in the wrong place, right? So so look at all the platforms. But don't be too scared to dive into you, you could have a, You could have a bit of a giggle along the way. Anyway. You could, you could. Um, 
and it doesn't really matter what the platform is. Um, and there are normally free memberships or premium memberships. Now, if you're just dipping your toe in the water and you want to see what's out there and you don't know which platform to go, go for the free membership. But once you've found a platform you think is for you, and let's say you haven't yet met Mr. or Mrs. Wright, um, then pay for that upgrade because it's usually not that much. Um, put up a profile. Include a photograph, but um, it doesn't have to be a detailed upfront. It could be an action photograph, like you riding a horse or you at church. Whatever, if you've got a value that's strong, maybe put that there. Or you might even put yourself um, with a picture of your kids, but not their faces, to show you know I've got children. Whatever you want, you know, people to know or not know about yourself. But I would say I, I would say put up a photograph now. The problem is, ideally, you don't even want to know what people look like when you first speak to them. So, so don't put up a really detailed photograph. Maybe you're wearing a hat or, you know, you're at the races or, I don't know, you're in a rally car or whatever it is that you're doing. But put up a, a picture. It could be of your dog if you want to sort of say, I love dogs and I'm not putting myself out there. And fill out the, the information as detailed as you can. But remember that... When, when people are asking on these profiles about likes and dislikes, you know, I've come to like some things that my husband does that I never thought I would be into. But if there are deal breakers, you know, make sure you put them in there. Like, you know, if you're a Christian and somebody needs to be a believer, make sure that that's in there, right? Mm. Um, if you are somebody, like some of these sites will have things like, um, whether you can be polyamorous, meaning having several lovers at the same time, um, that wouldn't suit me. I'm a one man at a time or a one person at a time person. So you would put that in there. But don't narrow things down so much that the person reading it goes, oh, God, that's too hard, you know. Um, if you're high maintenance and you know it, put it in there. You know, if you're somebody, that, uh, to me, high maintenance, sorry, um, sorry if you're one of these, but um, is nails, hair, waxing, all of that expensive stuff. So every month, you know, you're going to cost two or $300 just to, you know, to, to look, you know, put together, you know. Um, and if you're somebody that wears a lot of makeup, make sure on your photo you're wearing makeup, you know, like don't, don't be not who you are. So filling out a profile if you're not sure, start with less information and add more. You can always um, add that in as you go along. Um, I personally don't go by photograph. I find that photographs can be very misleading. And I have fallen in love with and been with some incredibly ugly looking people, right? Mm-hmm. And right now, I'm of a certain age where I'm not sexy anymore. And if I was dating, I would have to be me. And I'd be looking for somebody that's probably not as sexy as, you know, I wouldn't be dating somebody in their 30s when I'm in my 50s. Um, The other thing on a dating profile, really often they have an age range. And I don't know about you, but it's always pissed me off when you get a 45-year-old man looking for a 25-year-old woman. Mm. Do you know what I mean? I just, like, what's that about? Is it just about sex or a or a um pretty woman on your arm? No, I think it's... um, What is that? I think it's not accepting the fact that you're getting older. Yeah. Yeah, and also to now to be fair, I've got I've got a very good friend who falls into this category and has actually married a much much younger woman, yeah. um, and it was actually for them about family. He really mm-hmm. wanted to be a parent, so put that in there. Put yeah. that in there. Yeah, and they, you know, I, one, one of the things I'm family. looking forward to. Yeah, so you might go, you know, I, I don't know how profiles are looking now, but you know, you could be saying one of the things I'm looking forward to ultimately is having children, and I'd like to. You know, that's going to rule people out that are really afraid of, at this stage in their life, even thinking about children. 
you well, know. And actually, you know, in this, and you look, children, let's just quietly sort of head down that path for a second. I yeah. watched um, the first part of the documentary Birth Gap. Uh, Ooh. Yes. Yeah. Uh, by um, Michael Shaw, I think is the um, Sounds fun. documentary maker. And it's about childlessness, the epidemic oh. of childlessness. It is oh. absolutely fantastic. So the first part is free on YouTube. You, the second part you need to go to, I think, is website, which I'm hoping to do in the next few days. Writing it down. It is really good. And it's interesting. See, I know for me, when I entered back into the dating scene in my early 30s, yeah. after being in a very stable relationship for a long time, that uh, I I always knew that I wanted to have children. And I'd actually lost a baby with my first partner. Mm -hmm. So I and that that told me that, yes, this is something that I really, really want. But, of yeah. course, I'm neck, neck minute when you're that age, of course, and this was 20-plus years ago, you, you know, tick-tock, tick-tock. And I'm thinking, yeah. oh. So I was very clear right yeah. from the outset that this was a goal for me. And if we were going to, you know, if this was whoever I met, if I met somebody, it would be something that would be very, very time-dependent. Yeah. Which because, is quite a squeeze when you're going into the dating market wanting a child, right? Yeah. Like I did also, to be fair. Abs absolutely. Yeah. And you're right. It is. Um, it yeah. certainly does weed it out. Now, I did meet my husband, and uh, he was actually, he hadn't really thought about it, but he's, he's a few years, he's three and a half years older than I am. Uh, but the timing was sort of all right, you know, like in terms of yes. where he was at and I was at. And we figured that out very, very quickly. Um oh. And so we, we moved. Were you upfront about that with your profile or when you started to talk to people? Uh, no, once I started to talk to him, the profile I kept, I did lots of the things that you talked about. Like I was honest yeah. about, um, as I'm very tall, so I was honest about my height. I was honest about the fact that I am not a skinny man there. Yeah. Um, that, you know, there are Did you have a photo on your profile or no yeah. photo? Yeah, yeah, I did. And the photo yeah. I had was. Uh, one that had been taken pretty recently at a friend's yeah. wedding. Yeah. So it actually was quite a nice photo. It was, um, nice. and I was comfortable with the photograph. And uh, so that's the photo that I had. And it was, I was, yeah, very honest about where I was because I was in the in the provinces. And whilst I would consider a move, I was not considering a move back to a metropolitan area. Yeah, yeah. Great. You know, things like that. Great. Yeah, great. Yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah, because some, some people lie on their profiles or when they meet the person, they like them so much and they hear something that doesn't suit them, they don't say anything. And I think that's a bit of a mistake. And I've done that before. I've pretended because I'm like, oh, maybe he'll change. You know, maybe maybe he'll change his point of view. Now, people do change sometimes on minor stuff. Um, One of my... um absolutely no-nos was I would not date, sorry guys, a guy who was a speedway freak or a rugby player because I hate rugby and um, and speedway, I knew people that were speedway wives that would be at speedway every Saturday of their lives and I wasn't prepared to do that. I already had a child. So, um, and, I, and my child um, wouldn't have gone to speedway. Um, but I met a man who's a rally driver, which is quite different, but it's still, you know, a petrol, he's still a petrol head, but that's quite different. And I've actually gotten involved with that a little bit, um, mm -hmm. not to a major extent. And also I spend a lot of time on the back of the motorbike, which goes very fast, particularly during the lockups. Um, that's fun because there's not many people on the road. So um, I actually 
it wasn't a deal. It would have been a deal breaker if they were at Speedway every Saturday. And in fact, I did meet a guy that did that, and all he could talk about was Speedway. All mm. he could talk about was Speedway. Now, you know, and again, I have dated a guy that played rugby, and I even went to rugby, and it was then that I realised that wasn't the world I wanted to be in. So that's why that happened. Um, I'm not anti-sport, but the culture around rugby, the drinking, you know, all of that stuff that happened after the game just wasn't my cup of tea. Mm. That's why. Right. No, um, sorry, yeah. I got us derailed for a second. So we've um you so honesty in our profile. We're in, yep. yep. So being very, very clear and um looking at your own personal here, development. Looking at your personal development. If yep. you're finding a site that sort of feels right, don't yep. be afraid to upgrade to That's the right. premium service. What next? Yep. Well, the next thing is scrolling through profiles and being generous in the ones that you save. Um, I know people do the old swipe left, swipe right thing on your phone, but don't just look at the photograph. Actually read the profile. Maybe you'll have some search parameters and they'll be around age. They'll be around whether the person's bisexual or whether they're just into um, what you want, which in my case is, you know, a man um, wanting a woman and nothing else. Um, It might be... um, Uh, normally there's parameters about where they live, but don't be too worried about that because as you said, like somebody that lives in the city might be just looking for an opportunity to get into the provinces. So don't um, eliminate, but then just see what's available. See how many there are. Are there hundreds? Are there tens? Are there five? If there's five, keep all of those in your wee basket. Um, It's a wee bit like searching for anything. Um, Widen your search, narrow your search, and just sort of see. You You probably want to have at least initially maybe 50 to 60, 50 to 100 um, possibles, right? And then what I did is started reading their profile in detail and maybe taking notes. Sometimes there's a place you can write notes or keep a notebook. And then I just started contacting, and my first contact was always a written, um, either an email, a text, something that's written, not something that... um, means that you're going to meet them straight away so first of all have a chat with them digitally whether it's um whether it's email or text and just chat away and just see how they are and and ask questions and get to know them and when you feel like gosh I really like this guy I'd really like to meet them the next step is to filter out the people that you're going to have a phone call with right so first of all chat Chat, 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 and you might find out, you know, oh, you know, this person has three kids, absolutely doesn't want any more, has had a vasectomy, but you might go, I want a child. And that rules that person out. Don't get to fall in love with them before you rule that out. Mm. And and you can even say, look, I really like you. Is there any way you'd ever consider, if you met the right person, a vasectomy reversal? Which people do do, by the way, and usually it's successful. And would you consider another child? And if the answer is hell no, and you want a child, then they're off your list. And you just have to say, look, I'm, I'm sorry, you're really nice, but for now, um, I'm looking for people that are open to having children. So that might rule out a few. Um, then um, once you've chatted to people, and it might be, I used to have text fests that might last two or three hours with one person before I decided, mm, not sure. And if you're not sure, the next step would be to have phone call. And most people will provide their number, maybe not straight away, but once they've talked to you. 
and um you know have a chat ask some questions um talk about values i mean have some fun as well do a bit of flirting if you want quite often a sexy voice on the phone is um quite nice and i fell into the trap of being lulled by the sexy voices um but um you know find out you know where they're at you know i mean what they do for a living is important but not probably as important as their values um look i wouldn't I mean, I wouldn't look around for the right man by how much they earned, but for some people that's really important. And if it's important to you, if financial security through a relationship is important to you, I'd be upfront because some people will run, but some people won't. Some people don't care. They're happy to be involved in looking after their partner financially. Um, but, you know, we're in a world today where everybody expects to be independent and everybody else to be independent. But the truth is there are lots of couples where one person's more of a breadwinner than the other. And that's actually okay if it's okay for both of you. Financial predators, Annie. Yes. How do you detect a potential financial predator? Because we talked about debt earlier and one of the debt mm. traps, especially for women, is poor relationships. So... Have you got any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, in your conversation, you you are going to talk about what you do and if you own a house or if you're living at home with mum and dad or whatever. Um, and, you know, I found that men would easily say to me, oh, well, you know, my ex me over and, uh, you know, I had to start again, you know, that sort of thing. Or they might say it in a more polite way, which, which you know, they're two different types of men. Um, you know, I was in a marriage and when it ended, um, you know, we both had to start again. And so, no, I've got a massive mortgage and, an, and a new house, but I'm determined to pay it off. And I might say to them, well, you know, how, you know, how do you find that? I mean, I wouldn't say, do you just pay interest only? But I would, but find out what their commitment is to their financial issues are. Um, and, you know, you find out whether people have lounge suites on tick and dishwashers on tick and all that stuff. And again, there's nothing wrong with that in certain situations. I myself have been a single parent with a washing machine on tick because it's the only way I could buy it. But um, I didn't have debt mm. other than that. Um, you know, do they go to the pub? Do they drink? Do they play the pokies? Um, do they buy a lot of tickets? How many? You know, you can find those things out by chatting and, and um um, you know, just just asking, getting good at asking questions, you know, and laughing about things and being okay that you have different answers. So, um, you know, it might take a while. I mean, I wouldn't sleep with somebody if I was planning to have a long-term relationship and I thought that their money management was dodgy. I'd hold back on all of that till I knew that. I'd meet them a few times. So hold back on the sex um, for us women, or for me in any case, um, and many women I speak to, they have found that often once they're having a sexual relationship, it's hard to to say no and back out mm. because they've already they've already um, they've already gone there. For men, um, I hear that sometimes that's different. So you need to know how you are with that. You know, can you have sex with someone and care about them and then walk away easily? So, so the phone calls are a great filter. I, you know, have several phone calls with the same people. If they're impatient to meet you, that's a wee bit of a could be a wee bit of an alarm bell. And I would just say, hey, um, particularly if you've established you're both looking for Mr. or Mrs. Right. If you've established, however, that you're both just wanting sex, then go ahead and do it. 
go have your dirty sex, you know, get into it. Um, because, you know, you're both there for the same thing. But if you are, in fact, looking for a relationship, you're wanting some stability, maybe you're looking for children, then um, spend that time on those phone calls filtering people out. And I would say I've made mistakes by meeting someone too soon becoming attracted to them and going off and getting into bed with them and discovering a month down the track that I made a mistake. So um, have those phone calls. That, look, that will filter your funnel right down. Um, and keep, when you're having those phone calls, looking on that dating app for new fresh people coming in. Keep that process going. Don't stop. So, um, so you've got, first of all, you know, being open, Filtering people out that you're absolutely, you know, are no a deal breaker. Having conversations and then going to the phone call step. Or once you've um, established you want to meet the person and they want to meet you. This is what I did. I lived in a remote area and I met these people in a larger sort of provincial city. And the way I did it because of travel and childcare is I would meet three at a time, but I would meet one person at 10.30 in the morning for a coffee, another one maybe, you know, one o'clock and another one at three o'clock on the same day. And I'd line them up and I'd say, look, I live blah, blah. And, um, you know, you live blah, blah. How about we meet in this city? Um, which meant that both of us had a short drive. You want to actually look for commitment. I wouldn't go right to their doorstep. I'd make them at least drive 40 minutes, um, which is what I had to do as well. So we met in the middle. Um, they knew where I lived and I knew where they lived. And then um, I would just make sure that um, I had three appointments in one day so that I could maximize the, the exposure I had to these guys. And I would have a date and I would um, tell them that I had an hour. And when that hour was up, even if I really liked them, I would move on just to see whether there was that, that um, desire for both of us to meet again. In that first meeting, yes, did chemistry? Yeah, did you find because obviously you can sort of potentially develop that when you, as you said, you can fall for the sexy voice over the phone. Yes, but then you and I've had this, and you and you walk in and you see the person, and whilst you you'll have a great coffee and, and lots to talk about. There's just nothing there. There's no sparks, no butterflies. Have you had that? Yes, I have. And what I found was even worse than that is that sometimes I would sit down and I would start yawning straight away. I just was bored out of my tree with that person. They just there was nothing. It was it was not repellent, but just you will feel it. It's it's just nothing. I've got um, a friend's husband that does that. I just. I respect him. We can have conversations, but I'm just, I just want to start yawning as soon as he enters the room because he's just, um, yeah, I mean, I don't know if you've experienced that, but um, the other the opposite end of that is if you're incredibly attracted and you just want to get in the bathroom and have dirty sex with them straight away, that's also a bit of a warning sign because in any relationship after you've been going out for, I don't know, a year and a half, that might be wearing a bit thinner and that's not the basis for a good relationship. I mean, it might work out that, you're, that you've are that you got lots of things ticking the box and you're sexually attracted and that's great. But even if you're sexually attracted, I would not recommend going off and doing that with them. I would recommend even saying it, look, um, you know, at the end of the meeting, look, I really 
like the time we had together. I'm I've, the chemistry's there for me. I'm not sure how it is for you because it might not be the other way around. Mm-hmm. You know, like I've had it. I've had men attracted to me, and I just was not attracted to them, and they could not pick that up. So often the way that happens is you say, look, I'd like to meet you again. It's awesome. And you go home and then you receive a text to say, look, um, I really like you. You're a good person, but there's no attraction there. So I can't take it any further. And you can be really shocked because you felt it. So Mm. it can be a one-way feeling, honestly. And even, you know, when I was smiling and responding, because I do that with people, um, I might have liked the person, but I didn't feel the attraction. I can Mm. still be well what some people think is flirtatious but what I'm actually doing is being friendly mm. so you can miss cues when you meet someone yeah, um, yeah you can. But, but also that's where your honesty comes in with your system isn't it if the, yeah, if yeah. the person says to you hey look I really enjoyed the coffee and I love our chats but I haven't got that feeling there. I yeah. mean, you've, I mean, you do get that little stab in the heart, and you sort of think, "Oh, yeah." But then, at the same token, I have to admit, I've had that, and I'm, yeah. I actually respect. In fact, you I'm, mean you've been on the receiving end? I've been on yeah. the receiving end, and actually, two of those people are friends. Yep, have yep. become friends, and yes, that's, we're that's and we're great mates. Yeah. Well, the other thing is, um, and and this is the thing about attraction. Let's say you meet someone and you really like them, you feel warm towards them and all that stuff, but you just don't feel attracted. Um, and and you might think there's no way I can go to bed with this person. There's no way that's ever going to happen. Then, I think you have to be honest. But there's a bit of a fine line because sexual attraction can develop. It can actually develop. So. I wouldn't let one like that go. I would meet them again and again, maybe go hiking with them or um, on the beach if you don't want to be alone in the mountains, which possibly isn't a good recommendation. Maybe a beach walk is a good next date or um, going and doing something like, I don't know, bowling alley or something. But I always do coffee on the first date. I wouldn't do alcohol. I wouldn't meet in a bar, but I would meet in a cafe where you can talk, but there are other people going to be around and you, you know that they're not going to do something inappropriate. Mm. Um, and even a noisy cafe is okay because you know you might go and sit outside or you might go for a walk down to the river or wherever you are but um, I would never on that first meeting go somewhere completely private and meet someone privately just just for safety because there are stories um, and there are predators out there that will go to quite lengths so um, yeah you want to really discover on that first meeting more about their values more about their life just keep asking questions about them you know so they live rurally you say oh do you have animals what oh what animal do you have oh your dog or a cat person all of those sort of things um and you know if they've got horses do they do they ride them do they breed them like ask questions about them and be the person asking the most questions meaning you're in control of the conversation let them find out about you, but don't forget to ask questions about them that, that help you find out about their values, their lifestyle, their expectations. Amazing what you can find out in an hour about someone. And you can also reflect your questions back. So if you're asking them, yep. are you a dog or a cat person? They go, oh, yep. yes, you know, I've got a golden retriever and a tabby. Yeah. Oh, gosh, I love goldens. Yeah, I've got a blah, blah and a blah, yep. blah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, maybe we could take our dogs walking one day. Maybe we will. And that's a great second date, isn't it? Yep. Take the dogs for a walk and pick up their poo. Great fun. The next thing is walk away 
from that meeting, even if you know you want to meet them again, and just give yourself some time for reflection. And then maybe within within 24 hours, get back to them with a, hey, it was lovely to meet you. I'd love to meet you again. And you could say, I'm a bit nervous about going too fast, if you are, or um, I really want to go too fast because I feel uh, attracted to you. But um, I'm going to hold back. I'd like to meet in a public place next time if you're okay with it. And you might get someone coming back to you saying, oh, um, actually, look, I really like you, but um, having another child's a deal breaker for me. And I just think we should go no further. I mean, it might come that other way. Mm. So if you treat dating as a science and you've got lots of people in your funnel, you're not going to get hung up on any one particular person. And you might nearly get there and think, this is, oh, man, he could be Mr. Right. And he he rejects you or says no to you, which isn't actually a rejection. He's just being honest about where he's at or she. If you have lots of people in the funnel, you go next, next, next. You know, mm-hmm. it's a little bit like marketing or cold calling. You know, think of it that way. You put time in. Um, so with me seeing these three blokes in a row, I found that quite useful because I felt that there was an abundance of men then. Um, so I didn't get so concerned about someone saying no. But more often than not, I had men that were attracted to me or thought they were. And I was just like, God, there's no way. And they couldn't even feel it. So mm. don't presume that they can feel it. So the next step is a second date. And, and and maybe in this funneling system, you might have 10 men circulating that you're still chatting with. I would put more in the mix, honestly. I would keep putting them in. I would keep going through the process, seeing if any new people had come online or into the system that you're with. And then, um, you know, the second meeting might be, you know, a picnic or a walk on the beach or whatever. But I wouldn't let it last half a day. Unless you are five hours drive away, that's different. You might actually stay overnight at a friend's place or in a motel and meet them twice over the weekend. But I wouldn't go away on a sexy weekend um, on the second date. A lot of people do, and that can blow up badly or it can go okay. But if you're feeling vulnerable and um, you don't want to have your heart broken, as a woman, I would say, as me, um, I wouldn't do that. Now, there might be people out there that go, oh, I can have sex and not get my heart broken. Well, go do it then. Find out. Find out how that really works for you, and it might be fine. Then you're in a situation when, where if you've had a second date with someone, you're almost at relationship stage where if you both like each other, you might decide, right, um, we're going to date each other. And at that point, um, you may decide both to come off the app or you might say we're both going to stay on the app, but we're going to let other people know that we've met someone that has potential and so you won't go any further than um, maybe having a conversation on the phone with people until you're sure about that. You know, I mean, that you, you need to discuss that at that point. Both of you need to talk about that, what, what are we going to do. That to me is actually quite crucial, isn't it? Yeah. Because yeah. Um, if you don't discuss it, that's the sort of thing that could blow up a fledgling relationship, I would have thought. Yes. And in New Zealand, or actually in the world, I was doing some research, dating is a modern concept because in the past it wasn't needed. Either people had um, um, an arranged marriage or they lived in a small village. I think of my grandparents that all came from Scotland. They all lived in small villages and they all married someone that they'd been to school with and they knew. And, you know, it blossomed into a relationship at some point or it was a marriage of convenience, you know, either or. Dating is relatively new, and there in America, there's a dating scene that's quite different from New Zealand, and people that say they're dating 
often mean they're dating more than one person at the same time. They're not having sex with them. They're possibly not kissing them or anything like that. Um, Or maybe I'm being naive. Maybe they are. Maybe they're making out. But they might be making out with three different people at the same time because they're dating and not going steady. Now, in New Zealand... We, in the past, when I was young, people got drunk at the pub or whatever and then went and had sex and then decided whether they wanted to see each other again, which is a way of doing things, but it means that you're having, you know, random sex with people you've met at the pub while you're drunk, which is not ideal, I don't think. Um, If you're serious about finding the right person, you might find them that way, but you might also end up with, you know, a venereal disease, you know, so you need to be a wee bit careful. So um, I think it's time to be honest and say to the person, how are you doing this? Are you planning on meeting several people that you like and dating them several times? Or are you wanting to focus in on one person at a time and be exclusively meeting them? You know, and you can get varying answers on that. And maybe you need to decide for yourself how you want to go with that. Or maybe you want to wait until you're at that point. Because if you feel connected with someone, if you're a grown up, you're not going to feel hurt if they then say, look, actually I'm seeing two other people at this stage and I'm just, you know, I'm just trying to figure out where I'm going to go with all of these. I want to meet you all again. Then you shouldn't feel bad about that because you've entered into a dating site for goodness sake. But there might come a time when you both agree not to continue seeing anybody else for now until you figure out whether you like each other, which is appropriate. And then at that point, you see each other more. Um, There might be a point at which you decide to have sex or your values might um, um, subscribe to not having sex before marriage. Um, That's more unusual, but there are people that do that. Both of those are valid. And then you carry on on your merry way, either creating a relationship or finding out that you're not right for each other. And then you're, you know, licking your wounds and back onto the dating app again. Mm. So um, you, I think in most places you can hide your profile and pause it, not take it right down. But if you do take it right down, make sure you note down how you wrote your profile, take all the details down. In fact, I would copy paste it into a document in the first place and just see if there's any changes you want to make based on your results. Um, you might want to put more in about yourself. And you might want to put less in about yourself. You might have been fishing and decided there were too many fish in the sea. So you're going to refine it by putting more information about you um, in it. So that's really the nuts and bolts of it. And also um, learning how to break up, practicing that by, uh, again, I'm going to use the word rejecting, and I don't mean that emotionally, but learning how to reject people early in that process by saying, it was lovely to meet you. We do have a lot of common in common, but I don't feel that I could fall in love with you should we take it any further. You know, be honest with people and maybe give them feedback. Um, You know, if they had terribly bad breath or greasy hair, that's a bit more of a delicate thing to feed back on. But I would feed back on the positive things you liked about them and maybe feed back on the things where you felt you were not compatible. So, you know, don't be mean. There's no, mm. you know, there's enough people, there's enough hurt in the world without being mean. You might say, well, it was lovely to meet you. You know, I love that you love animals and that you're on a farm and, you know, that you're a vet. They're all mm. perfect for me. 
Um, but um, I just can't stomach um, rugby or trips to Bali or whatever it is that you can't mm. stomach. And, and I just know that they're important to you and I think that they're going to end up being a deal breaker in our relationship. Well, because if you live like you do and I do and you live provincially, not yep. that I meet my husband provincially, but you may come across that person again. So the last yes. thing you want is I've had that happen. To- yeah, terribly awkward. If you actually leave yeah. it, then, you know, if you run into that person again, you can yeah. go, oh, hi, Fred, how are you? You know, yeah, look, have you managed to meet anybody? You know, absolutely. how's life been for you? You know, and you absolutely. can pick up conversations because you know that person, you know, to a yeah. certain extent. And it yeah. needn't be awkward. Yeah, I, I think if you go rushing into things, and maybe you're not particularly self self developed, but most of our RCR listeners are, or are on the pathway. You know, you you run that. Um, I hate it when I hear of a woman or a man that's met someone online and they slag them off. Oh yeah, they can wank a la la la, and I'm like, mm, I wonder who the f-er was. Um, you you actually really honesty is really important and and maturity. Mm-hmm. And and if you're out there looking and you're brave enough to go online, um, and look, if it is about sex, that's that's a different thing altogether. You, you're not going to probably go through these filters so rigorously. Or you might, depending on what sort of sex you're looking for. I mean, you know, that's all up to you. Mm, the filter um, could be know, just different. You might be looking for a swinger. You know, you might be looking for, uh, you know, an open relationship, something that I would not tolerate, but some people would. You know, but but and you might... Get yourself hurt, and you need to risk being hurt. That, that's otherwise, you know, you, if you're living life, you're going to be hurt sometimes. Mm. That's just how it goes. Well, Annie, you've given us a lot of food for thought. Um, let us know some of your experiences, everybody. If you have had some experiences in things that are positive or negative, um, that would be some really interesting information. And, uh, you know, then we can share that if it's something that you wish to share. Inbox at realitycheck.radio or 2057 is the text number. Uh, Annie will be joining me from time to time now. She's going to be my new lifestyle guru. And <laughs> we're just going to talk about stuff like this, things in life that you know, we did debt last time, we've done dating this time, we've got plenty of other topics we're going to talk about, and just about how we can enrich our lives and make things better. Absolutely. Um, And yeah, if you've got something to add to the system and you're thinking, what about this? She didn't mention this. I'd love to know. Um, Or if you've developed another system or another way of doing things that really worked for you, um, we'd love to know. Yeah, share that with us as well. And we can actually talk about, we can save those up, you see, for next time we chat. And we can talk about those too. So look, inbox at realitycheck.radio is the email, 2057 is the text. Annie, as always, it, I mean, the time just flies by when you and I catch up. So great to catch up. Don't disappear, more great content here with Reality Check Radio on Counterculture. Good morning and welcome back to Counterculture here on Reality Check Radio. And of course, as we do on this time on Counterculture, Every week, and it's good to come back for 2024 and have my partner in crime with me, Marty Gibson. How are you, mate? Ah, Buenas tardes, amiga. Ah. Um, uh, muy bien. Yeah, How muy was, bien. Uh, Como esta? Uh, good. It was amazing. Nice. It was, it was amazing. It's nice to always have a long, protracted, extended break, whether you stay at home or go away. I haven't done it for... Ooh, probably about uh, yeah, pretty close to ten years. So we, it's uh, to have that long away, but it was good. It was yeah, something right. that was well needed, and uh, uh, you know we did it because our children are fast approaching what I call that time to for the baby birds to leave the nest. They're they're just both finishing up their last year or 
or so of high school and and I just know before we know it, they will be gone. So we thought, yeah. right, we need to do something and get some memories and family time down. And, and it was good. And it was nice to disconnect, not only for me and my husband, but um, the kids. You know, there was no hours on end on devices or anything like that. It was, you know, sitting around and cooking food and going for swims and having conversations and looking at art and history and trying to speak Spanish exceptionally poorly in places where wow. no English is spoken, you know, things like that. Uh, well, that sounds great. I mean, mm. yeah, I, I had a very, you know, I did do a little bit of tripping around, but did a fair bit of um, of uh, just staying home as well and going to the beach for a swim and jumping mm. out when the uh, bronze whalers were cruising by and, yeah, and jumping yeah. back in. Exactly. No, it's just good. It's good. And it's funny this time of year, isn't it? You know, February is, is one of those flux times because the kids go back to school initially and then the uni kids go back. Businesses and parliamentarians sort of shake off um, their sort of summer vibe and you get on to the, the business of the year, the business of doing business. And Being busy. Yes, and I have to admit, first week back, the retox back into New Zealand media has that's been. That's a good word. <laughs> yeah, you coined it the other day for me. I thought, Marty, that's exactly how I feel. Yeah. However, I'm. I'm I, here I now. really did that, and I've said it. Uh, I've said it on the political panel. I, I just, I've got quite a stack of of papers I haven't even opened, and as I read it, I, I mean, as I, I'm reading a lot of. Um, just the, the journalists' takes on various things. I, I'm concentrating or focusing in, in my own mind um, the extent to which they've become the problem mm. uh, in their um, in their characterising anyone who goes against the conventional approved viewpoint as being all sorts of racist and and uh, attributing all sorts of ulterior motives and creating these straw man arguments mm. rather than being brave enough to just have the chats you mm. know keep breathing while it gets difficult and and keep the good faith mm. these um, it was quite interesting i definitely i've seen actually a polarization with um some journalists in the sense that there are some that are going more in that direction almost like they can't believe that their team has lost and they're trying to sort of reconcile uh, what's going on. And in their mania, they're, they're sort of <laughs> furthering the case that many of us have placed um, that in the likes of Winston Peters has said that the Public Interest Journalism Fund has certainly exacerbated the problem. And then I'm pleasantly surprised when every now and then I actually see journalism happening and mm. I, th I think to myself, actually, I, sh I should actually cherish that, especially in the legacy format. And we have, and I've seen little snippets of that just yeah. this week. Fran uh, Sullivan, not this week, but I remember last year, towards the end of the year, she got a little bit of uh, steel in her spine and was willing to actually speak to some of the real reasons. Um, she danced but, around it this this week, but she yes, exactly. And um, yeah. Thomas Coughlin. Tracy Watkins was another interesting one. You pulled out uh, her mm -hmm. Sunday Star Times editorial, and she was talking about how how good it had been to get out of the press gallery. And it uh, it actually maybe it wasn't her, but they they kind of get close. 
My perspective on how we in the media cover politics has changed, though it's been a gradual evolution. Journalists who end up in the press gallery are usually at the top of the game. They're also hugely competitive. Uh, They hate being scooped and they hate being the last cab off the rank. That creates its own sense of urgency and fear of missing out on what other media are reporting. None of that really lends itself to nuance, does no. it? No. And 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 that's especially at this juncture, it would be nice if they changed gear. Mm. Well, one of the changing gears was uh, an interview done, I think, off the tiles. It's called with Thomas Coughlin, which is a political reporter for NZME, and he spoke to Dr. Elizabeth Ratter, Professor Elizabeth Ratter. And for starters, he had her on the podcast, mm. which was brilliant because outside of uh, the wonderful Leighton and and uh, Reality Check, she very rarely gets a mention. And she, she Thomas got a lot of truth in that 40 wow. or so minutes. But then since then, I've seen a couple of pieces written by him that you can, it's almost like you can see a little switch in his brain. You know, like, mm. has she tilted him just enough that he's starting to see angles that he wasn't quite seeing before? Or has it been the fact that he has spoken to somebody who has actually very eloquently and gently pushed back on him that's actually allowed him to realise that, oh, I can actually look at two sides of a story or an equation, and he's he's starting to do that. Hopefully it continues. There's a lazy way of, of looking at the world that especially, I mean, it's natural enough when you're in your 20s. And especially if you're in your 20s and you've gone through an education system that uh, equates having certain opinions with being a good person rather than um, taking a sometimes oppositional view just to test a theory. And so, you know, if if you are not all in on, um, you know, New Zealand borrowing tens of billions of dollars and sending it overseas to nuclear undeveloping nations that are still building coal-fired power plants, you hate the environment and don't want anything there for our kids and don't care if we all burn. You, you know, uh, if you uh, question uh, whether maybe it's time to have Parliament de- define uh, what the principles of the ch- treaty are rather than leaving it to the Waitangi Tribunal and activist judges, you hate Māori and you just want to oppress them and destroy the treaty. And mm. and so there are still so many of those. And, yeah, if you, if you give a contrary... Uh, opinion to that or, or inject something that's not um, that's seen as beyond the pale, there's, there's going to be a uh, a bit of squealing and a bit of fur is going to fly. But um, once you get through it, if you keep your cool mm. and keep gently asking questions, um, yeah, it, it opens up uh, a more nuanced, that more nuanced mm. discussion that we need to have as a maturing nation. Yeah. And, I mean, we – so – that kind of segues into Friday's political agenda, which many people listen to. And uh, look, I can tell you guys, I mean, <laughs> Marty and I recording it, it's, it was it was certainly not, um, it was difficult, you know, I mean, because mm. we're all trying to have conversations. All four of us actually respect each other greatly. Um, and just so you're all aware, we all left um, the conversation in, in a good place. But, you know, that's part of these conversations is that, there is a lot of passion there, and Donna brought a tremendous amount of passion to that conversation. And she, uh, and she reflects a lot of people that feel that way around, you know, the this 
principle of treat the principles bill uh, that ACT has actually bought. And it's interesting, one of the things that we didn't get a chance to talk about because we just ran out of time and we wanted to get onto the COVID inquiry, but one of the things that I have certainly seen is uh, whenever you've got emotions uh, around something and also to a lot of historical grievance, and both you and I don't dispute that in any way, shape or form, it's easy to actually take passion, grievance and then fear and focus it onto a certain um, issue. And I think that those who are in the managerial class of Māori, which um, Abrata talks about. The Willie Jackson class. The Willie Jackson class. Is the Joel Sharpton's. Well, in the, in the John Tamahiri class, I think yeah. he is certainly up to his eyeballs in this. Uh, they have gone and very masterfully put a focus on Seymour and this bill, and they have fed a lot of disinformation into Māori about what the meanings of that actually are and are stoking fear and anger. And so the conversation isn't actually had. And mm. it, it's, it has, it's been done. They, and it's interesting, you know, they, they learned all of this during COVID. And they became yeah. very good at it. And they've gone and taken all the skills that they've learned and they've applied and all it to the this. cash that they made jabbing uh, their uh, their people. Well, I mean, so Matt, to that point, Matt Rippett wrote that piece around the Waipareta Trust. And mm. if you didn't catch it, um, they had did uh, OIA requests. They have uh, the cost of what is earned. Now, remember, the Waipareta Trust is a charity. It is cheered by Tamahere, and it started around a number. Of course, Winston has had him in his crosshairs for a while. There is an investigation going on, but the upshot from it and the piece that he had written was of the 13, what was it, senior members or senior management within that charitable trust, their average salaries or management fees was over $500,000 per person. Now, the one thing he didn't ask in that entire piece, bearing in mind that this is a charity, is how did the charity derive its income? Mm. Yeah. That was, to me, the gaping hole. And what else about what you thought. Yeah, I mean, I guess what I thought reading it was, if, if you're involved in uh, helping people who are struggling, you have to have a fair bit of hide to take half a million bucks and not think about the opportunity cost of you taking that that grossly well, it's out of step with with other charities, which often you know there are plenty of charities that don't uh, maybe do as much as they should in terms of uh, the what actually reaches the coalface. But yeah, that's a lot of kids that um, that could have gotten reading recovery and been put on a different um, path in life. Um, it's uh, yeah. It, it, uh, comes at a, a high cost, and, and you know he he you know did the usual dismissed any questions about it as being anti Maori and uh, and you know said it's a one off um, a one off thing. Yeah, Tamahiri accused the Herald of running an anti Maori po- pogrom. Now pogrom it's a, a, a you know Soviet word for taking a group that's the enemy of the revolution and um, destroying them. 
So yeah, that that kind of language is is not helpful. No, no, it's not. And it was interesting, you know, that Josie Bacani, as the chief executive of Child Fund, came to his defence, saying, "If you compare the wages and salaries of cabinet ministers, frankly, wiped during the pandemic, thank God they got the vaccines out to Māori communities. They had to take the damn government to court to do it. Actually, Waipareta do a better job than the government when it comes to delivering services to Māori in Auckland." That's uh, interesting, coming from a a, uh, a lifelong Labour Party stalwart, isn't it? Yeah, you know, it's almost it's almost edging into that private charity would do a better job than socialised government, socialist government. Yeah, and I know also too, Karina Shields has a lot to sort of say around this. She, I know she's done a lot of work around um, the, those actual services that are delivered in the Waipareta Trust and how they derive their information in terms of delivering those services. Mm-hmm. And if it's and when you actually think that a lot of those services are derived on um, fee for service per individual or per what have you, again, how was their money derived and their income? exploded exponentially across that period of time. And one of the things that has not been seen is an accounting of that fee for service, that delivery for fee of of what was actually done. So I know there are people working on this and I will be watching in the background how that unfolds. But where this brings into a political sphere is, of course, you know, take his Waipareta hat off and put his management of the Māori Party hat on, you know, it's certainly very, very convenient for him to, whilst there is an ongoing investigation into uh, his sources of income within a trust that he's got his his, uh, control of, of the wheel, that there is uh, a lot of noise elsewhere. And I do wonder how much of this weaponization of Māori who have this free-floating anxiety, have this lack of meaning-making because they themselves are struggling to put food on the table and get a roof over their heads, something that Tamahiri does not have an issue with, but exploiting all of that and giving them something bigger to be fearful of. Yeah. Yeah, a series of straw man arguments. And, and, you know, he said before, you know, in, in... I can't remember how many years he said, you you won't be um, governing these people, we'll be governing them. And and, and I've raised this before, I've written it in, in a, an opinion piece, uh, that that's what traditional Māori society looks like. It's got rangatira and it's got tutua or commoners. And it uh, and the, the job of the tutua is to support the rangatira tanga. And um, then, you know, there's the tauraka or slaves. Um, and and I think, in, in, and I've argued in the modern Māori model, that is non-Māori taxpayers who you can take the fruits of their labour without reciprocity. You can denigrate their whakapapa uh, because they're of such low mana. And when I hear a lot of these leaders talk um, and the way they dismiss the legitimate concerns of New Zealanders as racist rather than actually engaging with them in a uh, in a way of mutual respect. I can hear that. And uh, as I've said before, I think what maybe some Māoris uh, interpret as racism is actually just the visceral reaction of people with a proud history of uh, ending slavery, 
and deposing despots to being spoken to like a slave by someone who seems to have pretensions to be a despot. Mm, indeed, indeed. And again, there is the media's portrayal that, again, Māori are speaking with one voice, and we know that that is yep. not true. And the denigration of anybody who is Māori, i.e. Winston Peters, Shane Jones, Casey Costello. <laughs> but you look at those three, look, look at what they've tried to do. I mean, look yeah. at how they tried to smear Casey with this ridiculous tobacco lobby uh, yeah. disinformation campaign. You know, so they there is this, you cannot have uh, dissident, in their view, dissident Māori voices who actually happened to hold the democratic power that the people of New Zealand has instilled on them, you can, you, you've you got to actually disenfranchise, you know, you've got to say that these people can, should not be listened to and this is why. Uh, and then you talk to people, you shared a conversation with me with a former local uh, government politician and senior police officer, and he had some, you know, very simple, blunt observations um, of what he sees, and he is, I think he's sort of on the money with a lot of this. So well, you want to share some of those? buying it. And I mean, this is where, you know, we're getting this argument that te tiriti is totally different from the treaty. And as far as I can tell, and I haven't exhaustively studied it, it is uh, whether um, Rangatiratanga means that the uh, John Tamahiris and Willie Jacksons get to rule the tutua or commoners um, in a tribal neo-feudalist kind of way, whereas uh, the English version basically means that people now have the right to own their own shit. They they mm. get that Englishman's home is his castle right to be free from people coming and taking the fruits of their labour on a whim. And which is what I was saying about, you know, that people of um, British descent and French descent have, have had that proud history of deposing despots who would just, when they got short of cash, um, walk into the village with their knights and take it. Mm. It's all that proud history. You know, much as we get told that we don't have a culture, of the Magna Carta and um, and and those kind of deals that we finally did with kings uh, to curb that impulse to uh, authoritarianism, and also to the fact that you know we are in a democratic society, and you know it's a very slippery slope if you want to go back from a, a societal point of view back into that tribalism. And I well, think we're assuming that that's what they want to do, and that's the missing piece, is mm. that these lily-livered journalists don't actually say to these uh, radicals or, um, you know, aspirant neo-feudalist leaders, what do you want? Mm. Talk me through it, because I could talk through the future that I want for New Zealand, and I would argue, I hope convincingly, that it would be better for Māori. Mm. Wealthier... Um, a society that where its children are safer and better educated, where we produce really, really well uh, balanced, well educated, compassionate children. Uh, unfortunately, that aim doesn't fit with the aims of someone who's interested in a three-year electoral cycle. No, no, and. Uh, sort of speaking of sort of activists in that realm, one of the interesting interviews that I did see was, did you see Jack Tame interviewing Chloe Swarbrick over the weekend? 
again, I'm struggling to retox, and that would be that would be um, my duathlon of toxic toxic it, narcissism. I actually made my husband watch it. You can imagine how did that you? went down. I did. Did you have Did you have matchsticks in his eyelids? Uh, yeah, yeah. Was he strapped and tied to the chair <laughs> when it when it uh, when it? Uh, that clockwork orange scene. Yeah, it was interesting because I had heard. You know, someone had said to me, "You should actually have a look at this. It's uh, not what you might expect." So the first half of it was exactly what I expected, which, and of course, Chloe is uh, with James Shaw's resignation, which to me completes any last resemblance that the Green Party has any interest in environmentalism whatsoever uh, with, his, yeah. with his departure. So therefore, it is now a fully fledged neo-Marxist communist <laughs> entity. Uh, so, yeah. yeah. Anywho, uh, of course, Chloe was is the pres- presumptive heir apparent, but now a actually an environmental activist within the party uh, based in Dunedin has now thrown his hat in the ring, but I think it's, uh, I actually think that's just a bit of a token quietly, but anywho, um, mm. to, ma- to make it not appear that it was constructed, that's just my opinion. However, Chloe, uh, I think, was expecting to have a nice little easy-ozy ride with uh, Jack, and Jack set a trap, and it was masterfully done. I couldn't believe it, and the most beautiful thing about probably halfway through the interview was the look on Chloe's face when she realised that Jack had set a trap, and he'd sprung it, and she'd walked straight into it. Do you want to play the clip? In November last year, speaking to a crowd of supporters, you led the chant, quote, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. At the time you used that phrase, were you aware that many Jewish people consider it deeply inflammatory, hateful and offensive? So if I may unpack the chronology of events that led up to my utilisation of that statement, we had previously heard at that rally from Dayinu. Uh, Dayinu is a group of uh, people from the Jewish diaspora uh, who are opposed to the occupation and the genocide that is currently playing out in the occupied Palestinian territories. We had a member of the Jewish community speaking to uh, their life experience of having felt as though they, in their own words, were indoctrinated and felt as though they had ideological blinders on and had fear of that statement alongside the Palestinian people. And that in coming to educate themselves and understand what had occurred in the history of, for example, 1948 with the Nakba and the displacement of the better part of a million people, Mm. the many deaths and devastation that came with that, that they came to understand that Palestinian freedom and liberation did not have a prerequisite of violence. And that to hold to that view that Palestine will be free or freedom for Palestinians Mm. somehow involves violence is an incredibly racist and problematic So, So that doesn't answer the question. When you use that phrase, were you aware that many Jewish people consider that to be a hateful and inflammatory phrase? And I take my lead from Palestinian and Jewish peace activists. That doesn't answer my question. Were you aware that many Jewish people consider that to be a hateful and inflammatory statement? Yes, Jack, I am aware of the fact that there are many differing views you, on this. You, so you, at the time you used that statement, you were aware that many in the Jewish community considered it inflammatory and hateful. Not necessarily the people who were there, mm. but that many in that community considered it inflammatory and hateful. When you used that phrase, you were aware of that? Yes, and I want to talk to the broader okay. context. Jack, no, 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 I'll, we'll bring up the broader context. So your your colleague, Ricardo Menendez March, used the phrase on social media back in 2021, and you were tagged in the post at the time. According to the New Zealand Jewish Council, after they expressed their concerns, you untagged yourself from that post. Is that correct? I don't recall. 
Is it true that after they expressed concerns, you met with students and teachers at the Karima Jewish School in yes. your Auckland Central electorate? People with knowledge of that meeting say you were told by the school in your electorate that that phrase was inflammatory and hateful and could even be interpreted as calling for the genocide of the Jewish people. Is that correct? Uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to recall the specifics of that, but I also recall that I continue to hold true to the kaupapa that Palestinian freedom is necessary if we are to have uh, long-standing peace and justice in I don't, the region. don't think anyone is, is, is opposing that statement. It's whether or not using the phrase that you chose to use could be interpreted as being inflammatory and hateful. So I, I want to know, when you had the meeting with the Kadima school in Auckland Central, people with knowledge of that meeting say you were told it was inflammatory and hateful. Mm -hmm. What do you recall? Uh, I recall that that was, yes, uh, along those lines, that would have been the views that right. were expressed. Right, so, so, so no, 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 hang on. So the Green Party has long expressed concerns about hate speech. Mm. Given the widespread and extremely well-documented concerns with the term that you used, do you believe it was hate speech? No, and if I may have a moment to unpack precisely that. As I was alluding to before, I believe that there is a deeply problematic and intentional misunderstanding that is being painted across the Palestinian people here, whereby there is some presupposition that freedom for Palestinian people who have been living under occupation for decades now and are presently being subjugated to a genocide. Mm. We are talking about tens of thousands of people who have been murdered in the last few months, approximately half of them children, and we are talking about advocating for their freedom, and that freedom is being painted somehow as violence. No, see, this is, this is, the, this is the problem, right? You, you had an option when, when you were there, when you were speaking in public. You had been warned by Jewish people that the phrase could be interpreted as being inflammatory and hateful. You'd gone to a meeting with a Jewish school in your electorate in which people in your own electorate had said that term could be interpreted as being inflammatory and hateful. And yet you chose to use it. You could have used an unambiguously non-offensive term in support of the Palestinian cause. 2468, Palestine should have a state. It is not so complicated. But you chose in that moment to use a term that is interpreted by many as being hateful. And perhaps that discomfort is something that we should lean into. Because again, I think that nowhere near enough focus has been paid to the genocide, which is literally playing out right now. Oh... <laughs> Welcome to your retalks. Yeah, gosh. And you notice, you know, this is actually, I think, before the clip that you played, she described um, any pushback against her as reactionary. It's another mm. Marxist phrase. Well, she, she actually referred uh, to her activism. Um, she views herself as an activist first. I mean, I generally, genuinely mm. believe that. What for me was uh, interesting in that clip, and I mean, if you want to have a look at that clip, play it from about nine minutes onwards. That's pretty much roughly where I started it, if you want to take a look. But she, she her facial expressions, she wasn't expecting that at all. You know, she's mm. obviously had six she years. hoisted her own petard. Yeah, she's had six years of breezing in and relatively yeah. straightforward interviews. Kudos to Jack Tame. Kudos to Jack Tame. I just would we have seen him conduct that sort of interview with her six months ago? Well, obviously not. There were a I few mean, things there that just worried me. One was the fact that she was quite prepared to accept that uh, what she said was hate speech, as long and it's actually not hate speech if she agrees that her position is correct, which to me signifies the danger of any 
potential curbing of speech in legislation because that's the you know it when you see it mantra from Dear Leader uh, will actually do you because that just illustrated to me that no, you don't know when you see it because it is so subjective. That's a classic example mm. of why speech should not be legislated against. And the second thing is, is you know, let's lean into this. Really, Chloe? Yeah. Chloe? <laughs> well, it's, yeah, laws for thee, but not for me. And mm. also you in this, and I hate to characterize it as a fight, but it is a fight. We've got to keep remembering that we are often up against people for whom deception is a justified, justifiable uh, tactic because the ends justify the means always. And that might involve violence. It might involve deception. It, it, it might involve all sorts of you can't make an omelette without breaking eggs, eggs comrade, nonsense. Uh, and, and often very airy kind of sighing. Um, uh, you know, I mean, you, you uh, highlighted that interview with Guy Williams. Mm. And that so full of that, wasn't it? Just this airy, oh, if only people weren't so stupid. If only they, they were like me. Yeah. And so <laughs> and, what, what we're referring to there is a the feature piece in, I think it was Canvas. Was it Canvas? The cover, no, Reset. And uh, I can't remember. I think it was Saturday Herald. Um, yeah, our kind of guy. And it was the cover story. And yeah, it, 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 I, two things. One, it was probably two pages of the most patronizing story I've ever seen in my entire life. And uh, two, I don't know how many PR gods or, you know, the sacrifices had to be made by the PR gods um, to actually get this out there and uh, paint this, try to paint this positive picture of Guy Williams. And it says to here, you know, is there a more um, fiercely patriotic comedian than Guy Williams? And he's talking about, I describe myself as very woke, he says. I'm I'm a known Green Party supporter from Central City, Auckland. I ride an e-bike to work most days, I harbour what's described as woke views. I can I contrast with small town New Zealand, which is normally the opposite of that. You know, shooting guns and none of that PC bullshit. You know, I mean, let's let's be. We couldn't be any woker and more sootyfied if we tried. And then, of course, he misses out the most important part. That I mean, I am assuming his partner is still Gloris Garriman. Well. Yeah, no, that didn't make it. That, that, that didn't, didn't make, make it into the story. And, you know, he's being interviewed by a guy who did an arts degree, or, you know, studied art and then um, did a journalism degree. So, you know, again, it's it's this little bubble and you can hear the characterization of anyone who's not in their bubble in this very, who is being very threatening and just unenlightened and basic and Neanderthal. And, and we just need to... We need to be patient with them and just, you know, explain how right we are. I mean, one of the bizarre things he said was, you know, he was talking about how people have ideas that diverge from his own worldview. They look at the world and the internet tells them everything's terrible and that spirals down a rabbit hole of what are we going to do, he answers, before giving the abortion issue as an example. People, he says see non-stop anti-abortion stories that claim other people are murdering babies, so they begin to think that abortion needs to be repealed. 
Babies, of course, aren't being murdered, but that doesn't matter. They are taking in so much information that says they are, and that shapes their thinking. When you look at their worldview and you see that they think people are murdering babies, you can kind of understand where they're coming from a little bit. I prefer not to have debates on abortion because, like a lot of things, I like to go upstream from it and Mm. wonder, well, why are women having sex with men who they know would be terrible fathers or, you know, not using readily available contraception. Um, But I've seen three children born and uh, they were right there the way they are now in that moment. And that, that really gave me pause for thought about being so glib about um, where life starts and that it starts once you've through that magic birth canal that confers humanity on you. Mm. But yeah, I guess that gets weak socialist men laid having those views. Mm. Yeah, indeed. Uh, there is definitely a gentle shift, even if it is by a couple of degrees. And actually, it's a pity. This was actually something that um, before we, uh, while we were in the break, before we kicked into a political panel that we were actually discussing that uh, didn't, you know, wasn't uh, on on record. But we were talking about that sort of that slight shift. I think Donna, did she bring it up actually? Um, it was something that she had noted, her and Sue had noted in some of the illegal work that they were doing within the Freedom and Outdoors Party. And, and I agree with her. You know, there is definitely a little subtle shift there. And with that subtle shift, just even by a few degrees, and we we saw it with Coglin, we have saw it there with Jack Tame, even Andrea Vance in her post piece around what's left for the left, the um, existential question Labor still needs to answer. You know, she's sort of seeing that Labour is no longer commands the skilled tradies who are now small business owners with little time for social justice debates or entrenched underclass of welfare recipients who don't get who won't get a job. You know, they they're starting yeah. to actually glimpse the reality and say it out loud, which well, they do Yeah, just as National gets more polished and settles into the beehive, bored political journalists will come looking for trouble. That speaks to the earlier point that we made about, you know, the the negative role that uh, the media is playing in terms of ginning up this racial tension, as Paul Brennan likes saying, ginning Mm. it up. What troubles me, and this is uh, uh, something I closed, I guess, uh, our political panel with, is my idea of a zipper consensus. You know, while we're having these banging our heads against a wall arguments using straw men to to focus our reasoning on, rather than having a conversation finding out what people actually think, while we're doing that, there's no outrage about the rate at which children are beaten to death or even worse, well, not worse, but, you know, neglected, often neglect is is uh, worse than abuse. The rate at which they're being failed by our unionised education system, those are the areas where I feel outrage. Mm. I feel outrage that, you know, John Tamahiri can characterise anyone asking questions about why his uh, salary and the salary of 13 other people within his charitable trust suddenly rose to half a million each rose by 77%, I think was the figure. Yeah, 77%. Um, You know, was that to pay back uh, the interest-free loan that he got for um, Te Pāti Māori's campaign? 
you know so while while he's able to characterize that as the as the most egregious thing that's happening at the moment and you know characterize david seymour seeking to clarify what the treaty uh, principles actually are where's the outrage on all of those social issues that make us a lower trust society that's turning out children that are far uh, less mm. likely to bring as much light as they're capable of into the world. Yeah, indeed, indeed. Stephen Joyce, uh, in his Weekend Herald piece, Government Faces Challenges on Fixing the Budget, and in a way he kind of starts to address this because Nicola Willis has got a huge job on her hands. Uh, she's got the job of a sorting out the absolute shit show she's inherited, but also too, within that public service, she's got the job of rooting up the foxes that are in the hen house. And they've been in there, you know, growing significantly. Uh, total crown expenditure grew from 31 to, 40, sorry, from 36 to 41% of our whole economy over the past six years. That was well, that was incredible, wasn't it? That's a 13% increase. And, astounding. And that doesn't really speak to how much even a 5% increase eats up the marginal ability of a business to operate oh, by totally. taking that resource away from it that it might use to buy capital equipment or pay workers better or get better quality workers. It, it's a suck on the economy. Sorry to interrupt you. No, but, no, that's okay. You know, every time I've seen Grant Robertson's little soup slurping mouth, you know, moan about, what the government's doing, I, I just have this just vision of him as an arsonist who's criticising the way the fire service are putting out the fires he started. Yeah, and, uh, and Māori saying, "Oh, we're missing the government. We've got to get back on track. Back on what track? Racking up a hundred billion dollars of extra government debt over six years, and and you know, there's got to be an acknowledgement of how much popularity." larding that $100 billion around with your pudgy little fingers has um, on your popularity. You can buy a lot of popularity with $100 billion. Oh, and I mean, the, the following paragraph, expenditure in the year to June 2023 alone was 83% higher than the same six years ago. These are phenomenal increases and should be Grant Robertson's political epitaph. Aside from the early COVID spending, never has so much been spent and so little achieved. You've got to the hide you've got to have to front up and do that. It's, it's, it's amazing just watching that sort of narcissism in real time, isn't it? Oh, indeed. So it's sort of, uh, the, it then says, as Treasury coyly puts it, yeah. we need to move from a focus on defining performance purely in the terms of expenditure and outputs to one that incorporates the quality of delivery and results. The voters were well ahead of them last yeah. October. That, that's such a, and, and there was some other area where that same, I think it was in Fran O'Sullivan's uh, article on the Wellington Club, where she said a period of transformation and upheaval for the public service as the Luxon cabinet insists on not only cutting costs across the board and redirecting resources to the front line, but achieving results like it's like a it's saying thing. the moon's made out of cheese, you know, it's kind of, but, yeah. but you know, the, the other aspect of the way those bureaucrats think that is really worth factoring in and understanding and certainly offers some explanation for the failure of socialist governments and the public sector to deliver 
the pot of gold at the end of the equity rainbow is that if you're in business, you've got to keep your eye on the outcome you want. Um, so your policy is determined by the outcome. Whereas the way governments do it, it's more of a fire and forget thing. The, the policy determines the outcome. And so you've got all these policies that screw off away from any delivery of results. And that's okay because the emphasis is on following policy. And uh, this is where the growth of government has been so corrosive for New Zealand. Just, just that unchecked cancerous growth of government between us. And, you know, one of the points that I made in that political panel is one of the reasons that Trevor Bloody Mallard and uh, dear leader had to send in the goon squad to crush the protests outside parliament is that you had a spontaneously developing society with 30% Māori, a mix of political persuasions that was self-organising, harmonious, picking up its own rubbish, looking after itself without government. They had to squash that. But more you don't than want that, that getting right. out that we don't need them. Right, but more than that, right under government's nose. Yeah. And that actually brings to sort of how I want to finish off nicely because today is the one-year anniversary of Cyclone Gabriel. And I shared a few thoughts earlier, and, and part of that was and one of the things that I learned having you know, gone through it, being in a situation where we were completely cut off from the rest of New Zealand from a communication perspective was it was actually the communities that are rebuilding. It's, it's our own communities. It's the individuals. It's the people. It's the neighbours. It is the churches, the congregations, the the marae. It is all of these. It is the people power that is going. Is rebuilding Hawke's Bay, uh, one shovel load of silt at a time. And whether it be Hawke's Bay wide or um, East Coast, really, despite government. I mean, government in those early stages were detrimental to the process, not positive. And, you know, there are still thousands of people that still haven't had assessments and, and it will be ongoing. And it is frustrating. Paula Bennett talked about the frustration that she sees in terms of the mindset, that Kiwi number eight wire mindset now no longer is there. She was in uh, Northern Queensland where they also have had a disaster and how quickly that they were just getting on with the job. And I, that's one of the things that I hope and some of the things that we hope here at Reality Check Radio is to have these conversations where we encourage ourselves to stand on our own two feet. And I think as you've just highlighted beautifully, as a community that a lot of our listeners are, we are those mm. sorts of people, that we are those people that create a functioning community under the nose of Parliament in Wellington. We're those people that get out there and help our neighbours and actually strip back all the politics and the identity and the bullshit and actually work it back at fundamental levels of right. Um, mate, how can I help? Yeah, well, and, and building consensus. Mm. And that's something that the media has utterly failed to do in all this. In fact, you got Janet Wilson's uh, column, and she um, positively recoiled from anything that could create an argument. Uh, she said referendum, referendums, it's actually referenda, I think, isn't it, Janet? Uh, such as the Treaty Principles Bill, are doomed to failure because the issue is politically sensitive and polarises a population 
with inflammatory debate. Well, I'm sorry, Janet. Uh, just because it's not in your rag doesn't mean it's not happening. I'd rather see it happening between the parties rather than amongst each party behind behind the hands. Mm. Um, and, you know, I spoke about that idea of the zipper consensus. You know, we're, before we get to this whole, well, what did uh, James Busby mean when he signed the Declaration of Independence or, or helped draft it? You know, stuff we can't know. Uh, let's sort of start at the bottom, shall we? We don't put out cigarettes on babies. Everyone good with that? And then we can move up. You know, after 10 years of state uh, education, children should be able to read and write and do maths and think critically. Are we all up for that? And, and by the time we get to the things we actually disagree on, uh, we'll be in a much better position to actually hash them out in good faith. And that, that's that's why the conversation, as fractious as it was with Donna, uh, still works and still comes together in the end. I have, you know, albeit briefly, I spent a couple of days with her and I've spoken to her previous to this and I've got a pretty good understanding of where she's coming from. She's got a pretty good understanding of where I'm coming from and the regard I hold Māori in, you know, so so we can have some of those conversations and, and remain friends. And, and I think that's um, where Reality Check Radio hope to, to see it leading the way in that this year. And I'd say to our listeners, you know, if you can think of someone who would be really good at offering a perspective on that, put them in touch with us. We'll talk to them with that in mind, you know, building that consensus, actually getting... Uh, Getting getting some real discussion happening rather than this uh, lily-livered shrinking from it. And, you know, it's disappointing to see the way Christopher Luxon's shrunk from it, but you can understand why, because he's committed that cardinal sin that politicians can't commit, particularly with female reporters. You can't uh, either fail to give them the tingles, or worse still, you can't give them the ick, or if you're a woman... Uh, you can't fail to remind uh, them of themselves, which is why Jacinda Ardern did so well as a 30-something lady who liked to, you know, like to go out and have a good time and probably talk about lip gloss. You know, oh, she's just me. I'll give her a real soft ride. But that guy who's bald and I wouldn't want to, you know, be with and he sort of, you know, maybe gives me the ick a little bit, I'm going to hammer him. Mm. Yeah. I yeah I'm just I am you know as there is a couple of little degrees of momentum I think the the changing government has been a tacit uh, unspoken permission I think for a lot of people to start having conversations about things that they thought they couldn't talk yeah. about before yeah. and you know those who live in the Guy Williams Central Auckland Chloe Swalbrook type bubbles uh, you know you you forget that all of those ones that live outside of your bubble do actually talk to each other and actually probably have more in common with each other across that zipper consensus than than you do in your rarefied bubble. So just, you know, don't don't be so alarmed or terrified when when things may actually change. And hopefully, hopefully, we will start seeing a progressing um, across the year. And that's what we're here to do in Media Matters, is it not, Marty? Well, I hope so. I, I hope so. Um, and, 
yeah, it's an exciting year ahead. And I, I've said uh, in another political panel, we probably um, need to keep, you know, holding ourselves to to high standards and maybe not indulging ourselves in in, um, in in the way that people who feel that they are a voice in the wilderness can when they feel that they're not really being listened to. I think what we say uh, will have an impact. So it's it's vital that we maintain that humanity and compassion and um, and sensibility and and don't react to some yes. of the crazier stuff that's going to get crazier. Oh, yeah, totally. Hey, look, let us know what you feel, of course. Uh, 2057 is the text number. Inbox at realitycheck.radio is the email. Marty and I love hearing what you think about what we've had to say this morning, and we've had a lot to say. And as he said, if you've got people that you think would be great ones to have, whether it be on the political agenda or even people that I get to talk to, uh, flick us a line. Um, we're always looking for great interviews and great people to talk to. And we've had some fantastic suggestions from our listeners. And also remember as well, if you want to keep hearing these conversations, we are funded by the people for the people. So if you do feel like throwing us a few shekels here and there, do pop over to our realitycheck.radio website, click the donation button and anything, yeah, any, yeah, buy some merch, be the walking billboard, but anything is appreciated and it does make a difference. Hey, look, don't go anywhere. I pop over to LA next to catch up with Helen Taylor from Exodus Cry here on Counterculture with RCR. But in the meantime, uh, thank you very much, Marty. I will do it all again next week. Oh, thanks, Marie. Welcome back. 2024, let's go. Totally. Thank you. Have a great week, everyone. You're listening to Counterculture on RCR. Welcome back to Counterculture here with Marie on Reality Check Radio and joining me now for a little bit of a catch up because things have developed since we spoke last year is Helen Taylor from Exodus Cry from Los Angeles. How are you Helen? I'm so well. It's so great to be here and reconnect and with the exciting update that we are for sure coming to New Zealand. I know. I just, I can't, as you said just before we got started, it was like a pipe dream when we talked about it last year and it's now actually happened. So tell us a little bit more about how the connection is that you're able to come to New Zealand and what it is you're going to be doing while you're here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so our organization, Exodus Cry, uh, one of the ways that we fight sex trafficking is through films and documentaries. Uh, we have several films that are available online. Um, and our, our very first documentary on this topic was called Nefarious Merchant of Souls that many people within the anti-trafficking movement um, have watched. And um, over the last few years, we've been working on a documentary called Buying Her that's all about the demand side of sex trafficking and um, and who are the men who buy sex and really uh, looking at that whole side of the and uh, the human trafficking equation that hasn't really been explored in much depth before. And um, New Zealand and Australia simultaneously um, just opened up. It felt like the same month, a lot of connections with organizations and individuals. And it seemed like one of those providential things where uh, everything just began to line up. And so we are really excited that we will be doing two in-person screenings of this movie. The movie isn't available to watch anywhere else. It hasn't been released online. So these, this is still an exclusive premiere tour. And our heart behind doing the, the screenings, um, in addition to showing them at a movie theater, is um, to have a panel discussion after the film with different experts um, who work either in the anti-trafficking field. Uh, we have an incredible um, survivor who... 
um, you actually had on your radio show a few months ago, Ali Marie. Um, she's going to be coming all the way from Australia back to her homeland where she grew up, New Zealand. Um, and we have a gentleman named Richie Hardcore who's going to be speaking um, on one of our panels. We're doing two screenings, one in Auckland and one in Taranga. And um, the, the dates for those will be um, February 28th and March 1st. So coming up in just a few weeks, we're really excited. Myself and one of my co-workers will be coming out in person to host these screenings. Oh, it'll be absolutely fantastic. And it's really good that you're actually able to bring this across to New Zealand because as I spoke to Ali Marie, as you know, last year and uh, also Karina, another survivor, it's one of those things that people are just not talking about and it's one of those many topics that needs to be more openly discussed and the medium of documentary making and the quality and production of the documentaries that you are producing is just such a good way for people to get accurately informed. What feedback have you been getting uh, so far? Have you done screenings already internationally elsewhere on this film? Yeah, we did a, um, a US screening tour last summer and a, a Europe tour. So 22 cities in total. Um, we had politicians, legislators, uh, as part of these screenings and panels and even had some laws and campaigns introduced in these different nations as a result of the screenings. And there's something about, I mean, we're in a generation that people watch documentaries a lot more. There's a real renaissance interest around documentaries. Most of the time it's on Netflix, but there's something about watching a documentary of the real life stories in person at these events that's deeply impactful, deeply activating. And I just feel really encouraged across the board that the topic of sex trafficking is is being covered more in different mediums in films in documentaries and it's such an important topic to discuss like you say it's a issue that really thrives in the shadows in the darkness when people are uneducated uninformed and they don't really know what to look for or even how to understand it in a in a, um, a certain framework and um we know that Trafficking wouldn't exist without the demand. The demand is what fuels the economic um, force behind sex trafficking. And we want to talk about what sex trafficking looks like around the world, um, but also what it could look like in our own neighbourhoods and backyards as well. And the all-important connection to childhood exposure to pornography, because every single sex buyer that we interviewed had been exposed to pornography as a child. And um, that addiction... Um, grew into a very, very dark and um, uh, shameful, out-of-control addiction where they began acting out on their fantasies. And that's uh, an aspect that we absolutely have to discuss and discuss uh, policy solutions around that as well. Mm. And there has actually now been some success, particularly in Australia. I know Ali Marie's been doing a lot of work. Tell us a little bit more about South Australia. Yeah, so in Adelaide, in um, uh, in South Australia, they have introduced a piece of anti-trafficking legislation that they're hoping will pass this year that will um, criminalise sex buying as well as third parties, pimps and traffickers. Um, but instead of criminalising those exploited in this, the sex trade, they will be offering government um, exit services and means for um, women to get out of exploitation. It's the first um, type of this legislation being introduced in Australia, which, as you know, is mostly legalised or fully decriminalised. Um, in New Zealand, you have full decriminalisation of prostitution, which has um, 
um, really prevented the police from being able to really prosecute trafficking cases or even access where trafficking is taking place um, because there's just no um, incentive or penalties that enable them to easily um, make those kind of charges. Um, and then across the board, we're seeing age verification, not only in Australia, but in the US, 36 states just in this past year have introduced or passed age verification bills. Um, France, the UK, Germany, Canada, a lot of countries are talking about it or in the process of passing that um, type of legislation. We are so aware that there's a real need for um, regulation to protect children from access to hardcore graphic porn and an urgent need to verify the basic age and consent of people in porn because that isn't happening, as well as educating people on the harms of this kind of content and the connection to addiction. So the film covers a lot of that. It's all through the first-hand stories of sex buyers, um, these men who many of them now work in the prevention space with other men with sex addiction, and they're really bravely, courageously sharing their stories, as well as many other trafficking survivors um, in our interviews who shared um, parts of their story that they hadn't really shared before. It's a deeply moving film and it, it ends on a note of hope, which I'm really grateful for. Like we don't show back, hold back showcasing that the harms of what's taking place um, in the, the sex trafficking industry. Uh, but we really finished this film with a call to action, a call for men to be part of the solution. Yes, they create the demand and are driving this industry um, but they're the ones who can end it. They're the ones who can bring about the changes that we want to see. And so it's a real um, invitation to the table for every man. Um, I feel like it's when people say, well, what, who's the target audience for this film? It's anyone and everyone with a heart to learn more about sex trafficking, um, particularly men. We really want to um, see men showing up at some of these screenings um, because they're the ones who um, can shift the the culture um, of men around them um, and other ones who who we really want to see have a, a heart shift around this. For too long, the anti-trafficking movement has been uh, led by women or seen as a women's issue. And we really want to unpack a lot of the issues that pertain more, most specifically even to men. Um, so, yeah, we're, we're hoping that these screenings will sell out and will be a really impactful um, way to continue a very important conversation in New Zealand around sex trafficking. Yeah, so you said Auckland, uh, February 28th, and March 1st in Tauranga. How do people find out where those screenings are and how to purchase tickets? Absolutely. I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> um, so the best way to purchase tickets uh, is the website, buyingher.com. Buying Her is the name of the film. And on, on there, you can purchase tickets. You can have all the information of where the screenings are. Um, the one in Auckland is at the Rialto New Market. Uh, movie theatre at 6.30 and the one in Tauranga is at Lux Cinemas um, at 7.30pm and we have a time of networking afterwards. I uh, really want to encourage people to stay for a drink after the film, connect with other like-minded people who are working in this space who really care about the issue of trafficking and are doing world-changing work even um, right in your neighbourhood in, in New Zealand. So we'd love to see people there. Um, the tickets are around um, $20.00 um local price with a and that's with an early bird discount so um buyingher.com buy your tickets there and we'd love to see you there and i will personally be there and hope to meet anyone and everyone who's who's able to come out oh that'd be fantastic and uh, fingers crossed i'm going to try and get uh, to one of those screenings 
If I can manage to get all the moons to align, it'll be absolutely great to to finally meet you in person. Thank you very much. This has been Helen Taylor from Exodus Cry. Look, you can listen to our full interview that I did do with Helen last year. If you've got the RCR app, just go to the Counterculture page and scroll down onto my replays. You will see it there, as well as the interviews I have done with Ellie Marie Diamond from Wahine Toa Rising. So do make sure you go back and reference those. And we talk so much about this issue in those really informative interviews. Helen, thank you so much again for your time. And this incredible film, buyingher.com, is the website if you want to purchase early bird tickets. Thanks, Helen. Thank you so much. And look forward to seeing people there. Thank you for joining me today with Counterculture. And I have to say, it feels really good to be back. And of course, changes are always a good thing in a new year. And one of the things I'm really excited about is the women are taking over on a Wednesday. <laughs> Following on now from us at Counterculture, so don't disappear after we're done. Natalie Cutler Welsh, I'm so excited. I can't wait to hear your show once I'm done here. This is so exciting. Up Your Brave is coming to Wednesdays. I'm excited to be in the house on a Wednesday. Uh, bringing it forward earlier in the week, it's it's a it's a great time for my show. I think I think we make Hump Day the best day of the week, you and I. And I think now that you're here, it's just going to be so good. Who have you got on the show this week? Yes, so this week, if people don't know my show, you know, everyone teases me. They're like, oh, if you're in a bad mood, listen to Up Your Brave. Well, it is about motivation, inspiration, and empowerment every week. But this week specifically, I am talking to fellow Canadian, Julie Blowen, and she's talking about turning dreams into reality. Then I'll be talking to Tony Knight on decentralized technology and data privacy. And wrapping up my three-hour show, but there's also music, is the spiritual side of menopause with Lindley Aaron. Oh, there you go. I see. I need mm-hmm. to definitely check into that for <laughs> sure. I know. It sneaks up on you, eh? The big menopause. Oh yeah, I'm I'm 50 now. So I said to her, "I'm anything you've got to offer, I'm I'm ready yeah. to learn." Yeah, yeah. See, I'm a few years older, but I'm sort of I'm kind of hoping I'm sneaking out the other side. But you know what? Anything that we can do to make it easier is always a good thing. So of course, this is up your brave. Don't disappear. It's like minutes away here with Natalie. It's so good to catch up with you, Nat. And we should try and do this every week. See what we've got going uh, every fab. Wednesday. Sounds fantastic. And of course, don't disappear. It is Valentine's Day. Are you doing anything special for Valentine's Day, Nat? Well, I meet at the beach with my lovely business community, and I said to them, I would love you to wear something that you love. So that was their invitation. And then we're actually going to go around the circle and do our networking intros, but we're also going to share one thing that we love to do, like kind of like a hobby. And one thing I love to do is go rollerblading at the beach with my friends. What do you love to do? Oh, what I love to do. I, I, I love the whole pace of um, slow food which we really got into while we were away. Mm. And I have to admit, for me, it's just finding something just fun to cook and just relishing the time that it takes to make it, to do it, and then to share it with those that you love. That's what I love doing. Uh, we got to do more of what we love. We do need to do more of what we love. And on that note, let's finish off with a great song for Valentine's Day from Kiwi band Avalanche City. It must be love, love, love. We'll catch you all next week on Reality Check Radio here with Counterculture. And Nat, Nat is up next with Up Your Brave. You've been listening to Counterculture with Marie Busky on RCR. Reality Check Radio. Reality Check Radio.